Welcome to episode 22 of Behind the Blade Podcast. It is fueled by influenza. Sorry about our hiatus that we had last week, but this week we hit it with both barrels. We talk about some cutting-edge new Kickstarter campaigns involving the knife industry. We go through and give the history on the M3 fighting knife from World War II, compounds, and what they can do for you for our trench crew, and of course, our favorite segment, the Q&As. Stay tuned. And we are back. Sorry for the hiatus, gang. It has been double-barreled life these last couple of weeks. We've had, uh, let's see, Jim was in a wedding. <laughs> yep. His son turned, wedding. how old Isaac turned? Six. Six. His son turned six. Mm-hmm. Uh, my girls were in a car accident. <laughs> we had the grind in. Yeah. We had uh, a trip to Colorado to go pick Ashley up to bring her up for the VM at Knife Shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been absolutely nonstop. Oh, and then we got sick. Everybody in the shop got sick, which is why I sound amazing on the radio today. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be congested and mucusy and probably sniffly and coffee, but uh, we didn't want to deny you guys another week of show. We've been getting hit up a little bit, and mm-hmm. people have been rattling our cage, and we said, you know what? Let's do it at the speed of Sunday. We're going to come in. It is the first day of October, which I'm very glad to put a bullet in September. Yeah, man. Uh, September was rough for both of us. Oh, it my was, God. It was like, ah. <laughs> so good news so. though so that's enough of the excuse making let's get to the exciting part uh jim and i are in the middle of taking all our sponsorship money and turning it into a computer which is way out of my depth i couldn't even describe it <laughs> but it can, yeah it, it's uh, going to allow us to do video streaming so right we should be able to do video streaming what i'm hoping to be able to do and and this is where we are a little bit restricted by our by our current internet provider Right, because because our upload speed is like maybe five megabytes a second. Oh, okay. So so I it'd be better if it were twenty. You know, like like the oh, rest that of the, big like, of a disparity. Like like, like the rest of the uh, like the rest of the nation. Yeah. <laughs> but um but what we can do is we're 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 considering one of two routes. I would love to do I think I think that's the route that we're gonna try to take first is the video streaming route. To be able to do like some sort of a live show. Yes. You know, where where we have where we have video switching software, we have somebody behind the scenes switching cameras back and forth and and we have a lot of really good plans in place for that. We have like a test bed center to be able to test new knives. Matt and I are talking about producing a knife that's just for testing, you know, to be able to cut those out in different steels so we could actually like physically show you guys different different steels and their performance and while and keeping things relatively tests. constant right while keeping things a- absolutely constant like a perfect control like a like a knife that we both agree on that plus like a, a like a like a review center with gopro cameras that are automatically hooked, to, hooked hooked up to the computer so we can just switch back and forth to that the other option if we can't do that via our upload speed and that's really the only linchpin is to be able to do a pre-recorded show and put it on youtube so i in either case we're not dropping we're not dropping this audio feed what we're going to do, if we do a live stream, we're going to download the stream, we're going to strip the audio out, and then that's going to go up on what you're subscribed to right now. As a podcast. So you as, still have a full right. audio podcast. Yeah, full audio podcast, and we're going to keep that in mind in production, too. So it's like instead of just like showing something to the camera and saying, here, you guys figure it out, we'll describe it. You know, Just like a, 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 a football sportscaster on the radio, we still have to – the burden is on us to give you guys a graphic image 
in, in spite of not having a graphic image. So we have right. to describe things a certain way. And we're going to be aware of that as we do these videos so that nobody's left out. You can still, right, I know a lot of you guys listen to it um, at work. I know a lot of you guys listen to it in the shop or in your squad cars. And so we want you to still have that audio content that you're used to from us. But as an additional add-on, there will be supplemental video that goes in tandem. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so And the same thing for pre-recorded videos. If we end up having to go pre-recorded videos just to maintain a high level of quality, we'll do that we'll edit it we'll knock it out then we'll take the audio and drop it in the podcast feed i mean so so no matter what no matter what this is still continuing for sure for certain yeah we have the the studio is almost done the recording studio is almost complete that's been another thing um you know i've been splitting my time between the vehement knives shop the vehement knives world headquarters which is under construction and under that roof is the behind the blade podcast recording studio so we have it Oh, I'm so pumped yeah, on this, man. Cool. We're, we're going to be able to put in the soundproofing we need. We're going to be able to have the appropriate lighting for doing the video. We're going to put in uh, message boards, like whiteboards and stuff for communications. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working on some infrastructure behind the scenes, just Jim and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jen and Ashley, too. They're helping out with that. But yeah. uh, we'll be we'll be kind of tightening all this up to give a little bit more of a professional package. So it's going to be increased sound quality through the setup of the studio. We're going to have better lighting situations, a photo booth within arm's reach so we can do unboxing videos. And then in the shop, under the Vietnamese World Headquarters shop roof, we have obviously the knife shop, which will allow us to do tech tips, hands-on video with mm-hmm. GoPros and stuff. Yes, sir. And then we have the outdoor knife lab, which Jim and I are going to be constructing also. Yes, sir. And so, I mean, oh. we've got a really bright future. I think 2018 is going to be our year in a in a many, many respects. Um but we just have to fight to get there. So we appreciate you guys sticking with us and we'll try not to let it go two weeks again. I know some other podcasts go months, maybe years between yep. episodes, but we feel really guilty when we go even two weeks down. So yeah, we do. Trust me, we're, we're working on it on our <laughs> end with, with everything we've got. So just yep. hang in there. Let's get to some fun stuff, Jim. What are you carrying today? So funny story. I had a wedding, as you mentioned earlier, and I was, we, I live in a small town. This Escanaba maybe has ten thousand people. So yeah. we have we have uh, we have we have an airport. We do believe it or not, we have an airport. It has <clears throat> one terminal. Yep. <laughs> and there are exactly two flights that go out. One is super early in the morning, and one is in the afternoon. Right. And you know, just like that's an in and out, and an end and in and out. And I was like, I was like, well, I live in a small town. I don't have to show up, you know, an hour early for the flight. I mean, so I showed up a half hour early. Turned out to be a huge mistake. They weren't loading oh. any bags on on the on on the on the plane at all. Everything was done already, and I was super late. I couldn't I couldn't even I couldn't even get my ticket. I had to like 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 show doe eyes to the best of my ability to 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 the poor women at uh, that that worked at TSA. And I'm like, but I really need to get on this flight, <laughs> and and everything's gonna be terrible. I have a wedding to go to. You're ruining my friend's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they were like, okay, fine, we'll let you in. So. So, so they did. They got me the ticket, and it was, they were super awesome about the whole the whole thing. But they, I was going through TSA, the security check thing, and there were like fourteen guys there for some reason. I'm embellishing a little bit, but eight passengers, fourteen TSA agents, <laughs> disproportionate. <laughs> so, um, but I had my ultralight bushcrafter in my bag, and I had Whoa. yeah, I know, I know, I, I um, and they were like, they were one of the guys was a little insistent that he keep it. Oh, <laughs> so I'm like, no. I'm going to go put it out in my car because the plane doesn't leave for another 15 minutes. Right. So I'm going to run out to my car real quick and I'll be back in like two minutes. Which the parking lot's right outside the door of the airport. I mean, it's it's not like what you would picture an airport to be. This is right. like, 
the airport a drug cartel would use in Central America. I mean, it really is. It's just little puddle jumpers right. leaving twice a day. That's right, it. right, right. You're, you're, you're too cheap. You're, you are exactly too cheap oscillating fans short of an episode of Narcos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so basically that's what happened. So I had, it's, I had to, I, I went, I ended up going on the trip with no knives. So they all, all of them, because I was carrying like three or four of them, went out to my car. They were sitting under underneath my floor mat and I locked my car and I grabbed my keys and I ran back in and I got on the flight and left everything. So everything worked out there. I get down there and I'm feeling a little naked because I'm, I'm not carrying anything, right. nothing. And, and I know that you guys out there in the trenches know exactly what that feels like. You have to have something. So, so I, uh, I Ubered myself out to a little knife shop and, and they didn't have a whole lot, but I did end up picking up a Kershaw cryo. I like it. So, so it was. It wasn't expensive. It wasn't expensive, but it is a Kershaw Cryo in its entirety. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a. I can't remember the guy's name because Hinderer? I, is it's, it it's a Rick Hinderer, yeah. Rick Hinderer O five six O ZT scaled down with cheaper components. Right. And but it's still a solid knife. It's a. Uh, it's it's it was sharp, shaving sharp right out of the snap package i was surprised because when he got back <laughs> yeah. i was like oh did you whip an edge on this he goes no that's still the factory edge yeah no yeah. it was it was it was awesome and yeah, no it's still the factory edge i mean it's a great budget option to be able to carry i, mean, I think i think the whole thing overall is maybe like five and a half inches six inches yeah so o- it, overall i mean it's a great edc size mm-hmm. uh is that pocket clip can you move it around or is it dedicated tip down carry no you can you can you can put it in any any of it looks like corners? any of the four positions okay so left right handed tip up tip down however you want it right now it's configured factory tip down which i'm not a huge fan of i know a lot of guys are tip are tip down carry fanatics yeah i'm actually a tip up carry fanatic just for how i grab the knife out of my pocket and flip it it's just that's where my hand ends up staying fine and right. i've never cut myself on carrying a tip up knife no, me neither. So, I, I yeah. tip up with everything except spider cones. Oh, really? Because I can grab the hole. Oh yeah, and do the spider drop. And do the spider drop. Yeah, and so that's and that's the only knife that I'm like I prefer it that way. But I do have to say, this comes stock with the lock bar stabilizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, hinder design, obviously, and then it also comes stock with a deep carry pocket clip. I mean, the pocket clip sits above the front of the bolster yep. in the tip down carry. Or I'm sorry, yeah, tip down carry. Tip down carry. So yeah. it vanishes in your pocket. Yeah, all you see, all you see is the all you see is the clip. Yeah. On, on the other end, and you have to look for it too, right? Because it's you know, narrow. So so that went right in my suit pants. Nice. <laughs> and I carry that, and I ended up using it like five or six times. And what are you into that? Thirty bucks. Thirty bucks. Yeah. Thirty bucks. You know, plus tax, and then and then and then that was it. So so that's what I'm carrying today. I was really surprised by uh, by how satisfied I was picking this up. Cause I was like, cause I was like, oh man, I'm, I, I, all right, fine. <laughs> and I, I, and I got it and I ended up being, you know, very pleasantly surprised. Everything's very clean on it. Well-constructed. Yeah. You know? Steel, steel instead of titanium on the scales. You yeah. know, I mean, I would say that's probably the biggest difference uh, next to the blade steel. Yep. Um, what is that blade steel? Uh, I think 12? it's CRMOV. Um, what? 18. Yeah. Okay. I, I'd have to, I'd have to look it They're up. Chinese quick, blade but, steel, but, yeah. but, it, but it's, it's Chinese blade steel. It's cheap blade steel, but those CR steels still aren't bad steels. Right. They're just cheaper steels. So, so yeah, just something to, something to consider for you guys, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're out there, but I'm, I'm still pretty proud of it. I'm going to be using that and that's going to go into my rotation for a few days until I get sick of it. Especially if you get yourself caught in the same situation Jim was in where you land somewhere and you're like, oh, what's a good dependable knife that's not going to break the bank that I can get. And if I have to throw it away for the flight back, who cares? I mean, this is a great option. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a $30. I would say this and the blur. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah again, blur, two yeah. Kershaws that yep. you could grab up and be like, great, just a, a burner knife, but they're high quality if you keep them forever. I mean, I have my S30 mm-hmm. Blur from hell, t- 10, 12 years ago. Oh really? Yeah, wow, I, yeah, I got it at a gun show in Arizona. Oh wow! In yeah. Phoenix before I even moved to the mountains, and so I mean, I've had it forever. It's like you know. two lifetimes ago. For yeah, you. exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And it still runs. And I used to dig ordnance mm. with that. So I mean, it's nice. it's gross and muddy and nasty, but yeah, the Kershaw. Their basic line. I mean, it's still, you know, ZT is obviously pretty top tier, but even yep. the basic Kershaws, man, they, they put everything into it. Yeah, they do. They do. Kai USA really does a good job managing both of those brands. Yes. The the, the Kershaw and um, Kershaw and ZT. And um, who else Who else do they have? I think they have Shun as well. I think so, yeah. I think, I think yep, Shun I think for, that's Kai, yep. for, for their kitchen knives is still very good. So hats off to those guys, man. Yep. A- absolutely excellent. So that brings me to my question that I posed to you, good sir, Matt. What are you carrying? I am bristling today. So what do I have? I have, <laughs> here's a little bit of uh, foreshadowing. I am carrying an H. Boker and Company 1943 US M3 fighting knife. Yes. And we will touch on that knife specifically in the history segment. I am also carrying my stout uh, classic hunter. I'm carrying my Swiss Army knife cadet. I'm sorry, pioneer in ALOX. I am carrying the Bowie I don't know. I don't think we touched on National Bowie Day when uh, Texas legalized the Bowie knife. Correct. Yeah. Which yeah, a long yep. time coming. So I brought my Bowie knife that I made at Grind in with me, which is kind of a custom amalgamation between a very old Bark River and a very new Vehement knife. So mm-hmm. uh, so I have that, and I have a little. This is cool. So I'm actually I have a little secret knife that's in my hand right now. I'll close <laughs> it so you guys can hear it. Oh, uh, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Industry headlines from around the world, brought to you by KnifeNews.com. Knife news for nice people. All right, so what do we have in the news, good sir? Well, we have the knife rights bill from Texas. Oh. Comes into it came into effect September 1st, 2017. Now, you can carry basically whatever size you want, except in... Schools, colleges, correctional facilities, houses of worship, and bars that derive more than 51% of their, in- their income from alcohol sales, and you can't be a minor. But... Barring all that, it's whatever you want, which includes, which includes very large Bowie knives. Because forever it was illegal in Texas, the home of the Bowie, Bowie knife, knife, yeah, <laughs> to carry a Bowie knife. <laughs> so we we found that kind of funny, but we love that this knife law went through. Congratulations, Texas, on on a doing a good job and being pro freedom. Yes, good job, absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. Especially, oh my goodness, you guys have been dealt a raw hand uh, these last couple of months with Harvey and all that stuff. Oh so yeah. Hope all of our listeners actually have fared well, both in Florida and Texas and the surrounding states that were affected by the storms. Hope you guys are all doing well. I know we touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, right now I think it's kind of everything is in motion and people should be rolling up their sleeves or at least some even settling back into their normal life. And we hope that's going well for you. Um, but yeah, congratulations, Texas, on legalizing the Bowie knife. For for more information, you guys can check that out as HB nineteen thirty five that repeals all quote illegal knives unquote in the Texas in the, wow can't speak today in Texas statute. There you go. So ballistic knives legal not legal. I, I think all illegal knives have been banished yeah, from yeah, the land. Yeah. I think so too. I think so too, except for barring those conditions. Yes. So um yeah there there's they call them location restricted knives. That that's anything over five and a half are now defined as quote location restricted knives, and that's schools, colleges, correctional facilities, churches, etc. Yep. And then minors, and then bars. Fifty one percent of those. Yeah. Fifty one percent of the income. But but it was a believe it or not it was a bipartisan bill. 
Yeah, that's so, cool. so there, there were there was there was Democrat support on on top of that. So that's excellent. That's exactly what we want to see. Yep. So um, a little surprising, uh, not to get into a political debate, but it's a little surprising that mm-hmm. uh, the other side of the aisle would see the need to do this. And yeah. I think that's great. That means that it is a legitimate concern that we all have that there shouldn't be any illegal knives. Well, I, th- you know? I think, you know, to talk a little bit about politics for a second, I think it's been proven that banning a thing does not eliminate the thing. Or that the problems perceived or, or the, to be the cause uh, by, caused by that inanimate object. Right, exactly. Right, we right. saw that with prohibition. We saw that with switchblades. Yep. We saw that with... We see, we see that with guns. We see that with, with, with knives. I mean, it just... To ban an item does not prevent the crime. Right. So so it's a, it's a useless gesture and just hinders those of us that just live normal good lives. Right. Yeah. So so yeah. So let's get off of that though because we're not political here. Um, what else we got in the news? We have something that's actually pretty cool. It's called the Blitzblade 2.0. This was neat. This was this was pretty sweet. So basically, it's a Kickstarter that's happening right now. As of the time of this recording, they have 18 days left to go. 1,239 backers pledged to a goal of $10,000. They've risen $91,000 for this with a great entry price point of about 60 bucks for an early bird deal. As of right now, there are about 500 and 48 spots left for their early bird special to get one of these. What is it, do you ask? Good question. The the Blitzblade is like a little baton with a glass breaker on the end of it as its standard just 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 configuration. But it screws apart in the middle to reveal an LED light, box cutter slash scraper, 440C stainless steel knife blade, a bottle opener, pry bar hex wrench tool. And all of that kind of like fits into like a little slot into into one of the sides. The other side has what looks like nine double-bit side, double-sided S2 steel bits ranging across all sorts of standard sizes. Looks like little quarter-inch drivers. That's pretty sweet. All of that fits into like this little baton-shaped black knurled, you know, lathe. So aluminum housing, steel. Housing? I think I think it's a, I think it's an aluminum housing, um, or it could be it, it could be either. I don't know. I don't know if it totally says on here as I scroll through it. But there's lots of beautiful pictures. Comes with a little Kydex. You know, comes with a little Kydex sheath loadout thing so you can put it on your belt. Now, as of and the recording of this, how many days are left on that Kickstarter campaign? 18. 18 days? 18 days left to go. I mean, I'm thinking about maybe I should maybe I should jump in on this for 60 bucks. And what's the uh, address so the uh, listeners can look it up? Um, it's, um, it's, it, there, I'm sure that there is a shortened link somewhere. Oh, it's like HTTP, <laughs> it, it, it's a, QS9 it's a slash. Hang on, <laughs> hang on. Let me try to find it. Um, there are no frequently asked questions. There's nothing on there, but on Kickstarter, it's called Blitzblade 2.0. And if you just go to Kickstarter and search for Blitzblade 2.0, I, I guarantee you, you'll find it. B-L-I-T-Z? B-L-I, no, Bitsblade. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Bitsblade. I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm a good reader. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I, I watched, I watched way too much, uh, uh, Rainbow, Rainbow Reading. Rainbow. Reading Rainbow. Rainbow. Reading yeah. Rainbow when I was a kid, and so I never actually read for myself. <laughs> Thanks, LeVar Burton. Yeah. Bitsblade 2.0, and uh, and it says that the, it's the last multi-tool you'll ever need. Well, I can't guarantee that Full for you. Full statement, but yeah. Well, I can't guarantee that for you. What I can tell you is that this is a pretty pretty sweet little thing, and uh, they have a, they have an excellently edited video that's that's up on there right now, and you guys should definitely check it out. Um, I think that I'm going to follow this eventually in oh, the I, next I, 18. I can't days. wait to see yours. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. We'll share it. Yeah, yeah. We'll share it. It'll be cool. So so make sure you guys check that out. Um, it does look pretty sweet. Sweet. So is that yeah. it? Anything else pressing headlines? Um, I don't see a whole lot, um, in in the headlines thing. Um, 
No, I think that's it. Cool. So we will be back in a flash with a history lesson you won't soon forget. Mail call! My favorite type of call. Oh my god, I'm pretty excited <laughs> about this one. So I kind of alluded to it during the uh, news segment, but I wanted to give this just a minute on its own. I am holding in my hands a Northfield, you know, made by Great Eastern, their unexcelled line, the UNXLD line. This is a 38 special, which is kind of a reverse dogleg, but it's got these coined and pinched nickel silver bolsters, you know, bolstering in that jigged red uh, bone, which looks really hot. It's gorgeous, man. It's really nice. Well, uh-huh. what, what makes mine unique, it's got uh, brass liners, which I'm a super sucker for. It, when it comes to slip joints, they have to have brass liners for me. <laughs> Otherwise, it loses all appeal. But what makes this one unique is this was hand reground and branded by Mr. Tom Crine himself. And when I open this up, it is a laser beam. <laughs> I mean, it, he thinned the profile on the blade, the bevel on the blade, not to the point of weakening or to any point that I feel like this knife is fragile or even, you know, worn away, but holy cow, it is so friggin' sharp. And it has this cool kind of custom look to it now. It's not like the homogenous... Uh, your grandfather's pocket knife. It has all that nostalgia, but it's got a little bit of a coarse finish on it after Tom did his magic to it, which gives it kind of a more contemporary look. But everything lined up really well, and I'm, I am so pleased with this blade, and I will stand behind what I said before, is, uh, you know, Tom & Co. Are, it's one of the few shops in the world that can touch an existing knife and increase its value, and at the very, very least, increase its usability. So I'm very impressed with this. I invite you guys to go check them out. Uh, Jim, where can they find Tom on Facebook? You can find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Knives, K-R-E-I-N, and you can check out his website, crineknives.net. So go check him out. I know that you guys in the groups and the forums can find Crine Regrinds. Uh, having one in my hand right now, I can speak from personal experience after carrying this knife. That is definitely a worthy endeavor to try to grab one of his regrinds wherever you can. And uh, while you're on his Facebook page, let him know that we sent you. And keep an eye out for his flash lottos and his, he's got all kinds of cool stuff going on there. So he does make knives available even though his books are closed. So go check him out. We appreciate it. And like I said, let him know behind the blade sent you. And we are back as I rustled my papers as if we were reading the news. <laughs> Today, all right, let me start off with this. I, we were in uh, Mike Stewart's office and he's got this encyclopedia i mean I, he's got a library a knife book library he's very giving with those books and we borrow them jim and i both we mm-hmm. borrow them and, yep. and thumb through them and you know me I, I love the historical knives so i get so much from them well i already have a couple books on loan from him actually i think i have one but it's a it's a good book and i couldn't in good conscience check out any more books from mike's library so I tried to pull the Magnum PI with his little Minox B, and I took a bunch of spy photos, except I used a phone, <laughs> and, which is even more James his, Bond than the Minox B. Uh, I know, I know. Right, right? Little microfilm things right. versus a cell phone, yeah. Uh, so I took a bunch of pictures of a bunch of pertinent pages on this knife that we're going to be talking about today, and none of them checked out. And since I don't have, like, an Intel analysis team of people <laughs> to reconstruct my photographs someday i someday, just had Matt. to get on wikipedia and download <laughs> our basic information pack but that'll fit neatly into the 15 minutes that we need to fill this segment with but today we are talking about one of my all-time favorites 
I, I just, I look, there's something about this night, as I'm talking about it, my arm hair is standing up. I can't, <laughs> like, just, what little bristly arm hair I have from testing knife sharpness is standing on end at this moment. We are talking about the U.S. M3 fighting knife. Now, you guys will have to take a step back if you're not already familiar with the blade and picture your basic M16 bayonet. So you can picture mm -hmm. that blade. It's got what we call a bayonet grind, which is one and a half edges, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of a narrow profile on the blade. But instead of having the bayonet uh, attachment lug on the butt and the ring at the guard to fit over the muzzle device, it just has a bent guard. Um, it's straight and then bent at about a 45 on the spine side of the knife to act as a thumb rest. Mm -hmm. And the base is reminiscent to what you would find on a Navy Mark II or a K-Bar. It's just a flat plate of steel yep, that is a, blind pinned. Yep, blind uh, pinned straight through. Yep, and then yep. it's uh, it, it, that's what squeezes together the stacked leather handle. Uh, which is ringed on a lathe, and we'll get into all the design features, but this is a historical knife. A lot of people will call it a trench knife. A lot of people will call it a paratrooper knife. Let's get to the bottom of that right now, and you will find out where the naming convention really comes from. To dive in. Let's do it. The M3, and that's M as in Mike, M3 fighting knife or M3 trench knife was an American military combat knife first issued in March of 1943. So this is in the throes of World War II. The M3 was originally designated for issue to soldiers not otherwise equipped with a bayonet. However, it was hmm. particularly designed for use by elite or shock forces in need of a close combat knife, such as airborne troops and army rangers. And these units received priority for the M3 at the start of production. Nice. As more M3 knives became available in 1943 and 1944, the knife was issued to other soldiers, such as Army Air Corps crewmen and soldiers not otherwise equipped with a bayonet, including soldiers issued the M1 carbines or submachine gun, the grease gun. You guys remember the grease guns? Um, <laughs> the converted ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the M3 trench knife was developed as a replacement for the World War I era U.S. Mark I trench knife, which I believe, Jim, can you Chromebook this? The Mark I trench knife should be the LFNC Company brass knuckle duster. Yeah, can yep, you, there it, it is. Is it? Yep. Okay. Mark one trench knife. How did you knife. do that without even touching it? There's a link. Oh. I just followed the link. Oh, okay. Was, <laughs> and it came right up to amazing. Like, I thought he did it with brain power. Oh, no. There's I, the knuckle duster. So, yeah. Yep. So that is the uh, LFNC Company brass knuckle duster, which, yes. which we should probably do a segment on that at some point because it's an awesome knife. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. I'm fighting this cold. I'm going to be gross, but I promise the information mm -hmm. will still be sound. It wasn't just LFNC looking at this right now. It was, it was a Henry, Henry Distance Sons at HDNS and OCL. Oh. Or also manufacturers as well. Oh, okay. I did yep. not know that. Thank you for that. Cool. We'll touch on that in maybe next, next, maybe next, 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 yeah. next episode. All right. <laughs> so uh, let me start over. The M3 trench knife was developed as a replacement for World War One era U.S. Mark I trench knife. Primarily, I thought this was interesting and it makes sense. Primarily to conserve strategic material resources. Ooh. Well, there's a pound and a half of brass on the Mark Ones. Yeah, you know I what suppose. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, we'll, like, let's throttle back a little bit. Uh, we can use those in shells. Uh, yeah, exactly. Casings, Which yeah. do we need more? Yeah. Brass knuckles mm. or artillery shells? <laughs> uh, the M3 would also replace the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife or OSS dagger in U.S. service in 1944, which we had covered in a previous episode. Absolutely, you guys should know everything there is to know about the OSS and Fairbairn <laughs> Sykes because we already covered it. The M3 itself was discontinued in August 1944 after the M1 carbine was modified to accept a knife type bayonet. The M3's blade and handle design were incorporated into the new M4 bayonet. So the design carried on into bayonet hood, yeah. uh, you know, as, as it uh, was extinguished from service as a standalone fighting knife. So the designs and features, this was designed for rapid production using a minimum of strategic materials and machine processes. Now, I want you guys to kind of let that marinate a little bit. Designed for rapid production using a minimum of strategic metals and machine processes. Nowhere in there does it say this was designed to be a Swiss watch 
of the highest aptitude, <laughs> nor the most yeah. effective according to tests. This was as fast and as quick and as dirty as mm-hmm. they could make a fighting knife, which it actually is a very attractive, striking looking knife in shape and proportion mm-hmm. and design, considering it was just made to be cheap. Yep. It, that's, yep. that's what it was designed to be. The yeah. M3 trench knife used a relatively narrow 6.75 inch bayonet style spear point blade with a sharpened 3.5 inch secondary edge. And that secondary edge is they're talking about the top edge where it comes back about halfway through, halfway down the blade. A QC1 grind, if you will. Yeah, yeah. where does that term come from? QC1? I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know, but, but, but not off the top of my head. I'd have to look it okay. up. But, no. but that's just what we've always called it. Gotcha. So it's been that been a half grind, half half swedge on the top that meets as like, as like a dagger would. Right. And yeah, we always <laughs> called it a bayonet grind. So yeah. I'm curious to hear the roots of the QC1 grind because that <laughs> it, it sounds interesting to me. It sounds cool. <laughs> uh, the blade was made of carbon steel and was either blued or parkerized. This one is Parkerized. This one one that I have in my hand is Parkerized. Mm -hmm. Production of the grooved leather handle was later simplified by forming the grip of stacked leather washers that were shaped by turning on a lathe, then polished and lacquered. The steel crossguard had an angular bend at one end to facilitate a thumb rest. We talked about that in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we're painting kind of a visual picture for you guys. The M3 was developed as a replacement for the World War I-era U.S. Mark I trench knife, which we covered primarily to conserve strategic metal resources. Right. The prototype of what would become the M3 was evaluated in December. Page change. Boop. Remember that in class? <laughs> uh, d- December of 1942. By the, This, I thought, was interesting. The Civilian Board of Directors of the Smaller War Plants Corporation Board, the SWPC, Interesting. Smaller War Plants Corporation Board. So I, I think this may be the birth of Six Sigma or some sort of efficiency program because it sounded like they were trying to make more efficient things by minimizing their exposure through larger plants. I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, there's a quick hover over thing for the for the resource for that. The uh, the SWPC was chaired by industrial tycoon Robert Wood Johnson II, mm. who was given a commission as a brigadier general. Johnson was known for overruling production items requests by the service branches in favor of designs that could be produced more quickly or more economically by small businesses with limited tooling. Oh, cottage. So, yeah, so so they, they kind oh, of... Oh, they were figuring right. out a way to get cottage industries to supply their... their, their uh, Products, to, I guess. To, 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 uh, just just a supply period. Yeah, I mean, and so so it's not, this guy was in charge of cheapening the price, but maintaining the quality and increasing the quantity. That's crazy. So that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And uh, and he and he passed it off to small businesses, which was great, freeing up material for private in- industry to begin a reconversion to peacetime goods production. So after after everything was done, he was in charge of helping them convert back to whatever they were doing before. That's. That's pretty cool. It yeah, is. I, yeah, I had never slick. heard of that, and that yeah. that's that's a pretty neat story, just in and of itself. So there nice. you go. That one was free, guys. <laughs> um, let's see. It was it was okay. So it was submitted to the civilian board in the SWPC, which you guys now know about, against another competing design. Now you guessed it, guys. What would be competing in this realm? Sixty-seven inch blade, mm-hmm. stack leather handle. That's right. The U.S. Marine Corps K-Bar fighting utility knife, also known as the Navy Mark II. Right? However, <laughs> we covered that one in a previous episode as well. We did. Boy, we're, we're starting to get there. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have a couple thousand years to go in full knife development, but we're, I think World War II is getting pretty. We're almost up. there. Yeah. <laughs> However, while the specified priority steel supplies for both knives were available, the M3's lower production cost compared to that of the K-Bar convinced the SWPC board of directors to approve the M3 prototype for quantity production. Though the M3 had competed with the USMC K-Bar for approval by the the Army, the M3, unlike the Marine Corps knife, was not dual-purpose weapon designed for both close combat, fighting knife, and general use. Utility knife, as the U.S. Catalog of Standard Ordnance Items of 1943 clearly explained, here we go, 
The Trench Knife M3 has been developed to fill the need in modern warfare for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. While designated for issue to soldiers not armed with a bayonet, it is especially designated, designed for such shock units as parachute troops and rangers. So, this was not a dual-purpose fighting utility knife. But anybody who's ever carried a knife, whether you fought with them or not, knows that you're going to use it as a utility knife. And this is kind of the downfall of this model, as it were, in World War II. The M3 was first issued to U.S. Army soldiers in March of 1943, with the first knives going to elite units such as airborne troops and the U.S. Army Rangers. I said and, not in, but you're going to have to bear with my <laughs> congestion. It sounded weird to me, too. Despite ordnance descriptions of the knife, as being designed for hand-to-hand -hand warfare, the M3 did not receive universal praise as close-quarters fighting knife upon issue to combat units. While the knife itself was generally well-made and balanced, some paratroopers and rangers mastered the art of using the M3 as a throwing knife, which, if you guys can find some... Uh, Ontario still makes these. So does Boker. So if you can get some inexpensive Ontarios or Bokers that aren't historically significant, I definitely recommend giving these a toss because they are a hoot to throw. And because of that heavy handle which is counterintuitive to knife throwers. But because of that heavy handle, you have a lot of impact force when you're on target and you get the rotations down. These are a blast to throw. So knowing that these paratroopers <laughs> and rangers mastered the art of throwing the M3, I mean, it's, I recommend it. If you're a knife thrower, just give them a toss. Those in like the Glock, uh, what, the Glock 81s, I think? The Glock knives? Yeah. Glock field, they'll throw like a champ. Do they really? Blast. I had no idea. That's yeah. awesome. The long, narrow, dagger-like steel blade designed to economize on priority steel requirements <laughs> was best used as a thrusting or stabbing weapon and performed less well when used for slashing strokes. Reports of blade failures on M3s in service increased as soldiers began to use their trench knives for ordinary utility tasks such as opening ammo crates and food ration tins, a role for which the M3 had not been designed. So they stepped off the reservation and started using them the way grunts would, and sure enough, they were breaking knives. Some soldiers also found the M3's cutting edge to be difficult to maintain in the field. And the reason behind that, let's give a little BTB backstory, and being a fan of the M3, I've had several of them, and they all share the same issue. The grind, the bevel, the primary bevel is too shallow because of the narrow blade mm -hmm. to reach good edge geometry towards the body. It would have to be a zero grind. Right, right. Talking about cutting ability at yes. this point. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so mm -hmm. they were all pretty obtuse and the secondary edge bevel was very blunt and it was a lot of material to remove to even get these sharp and it would creep way up the bevel. So being able to maintain that edge, I could see would definitely be a problem if you had to rely on it as a cutting tool. For me, this is not what I carry on my hip. This is a collectible. So I really couldn't care less. But for the guys who had to use these as their field knives, I'd be pretty bummed out too. So I, I'm, I'm with them on that. Um, Let's see. As issued, the blade's secondary or false edge was intentionally sharpened and beveled for only a portion of its length, leaving an unsharpened spine on top of the blade in effort to stiffen the relatively narrow blade. This limited the usefulness of the M3 when employed for backhand slashing strokes. Yep. Now, I think that's a little bit editorial because you do still have about a three and a half inch blade, as they stated, of sharpened piece. And you even have a safer spot for your thumb if you were going to put a power assist into it while cutting. Sure thing. I don't think you give anything up as far as that goes there may be some anecdotal evidence to say otherwise of one joe having an issue with it there is a, a citation um what do you call these the little note sites um references reference yeah, yeah re there's a reference yeah. note it's note number mm -hmm. four i uh would ask you guys to go through the uh bibliography or whatever they have at the end of this to check that out and find out the the poop behind that full story 
Um, after U.S. Army Ordnance began developing a proprietary bayonet for use in the M1 carbine, it was realized that the new carbine bayonet, which already incorporated the M3 blade design and leather wrap grip, could also replace the M3 in service's secondary role as a fighting knife. The carbine bayonet, now designated the Bayonet U.S. M4, was added to the company table of organization in June 1944, and the M3 was declared to be a limited standard ordnance item with supplies to be issued until exhausted. <laughs> Nevertheless, the final M3 production run did not take place until August 1944, by which time, hang on to your hats, kids, 2,590,247 M3 trench <laughs> knives had been produced. At termination of production in August 1944, the M3 trench knife had one of the shortest production and service records of any U.S. combat knife. However, the M3's blade design continued in U.S. military service in the form of the U.S. M456 and ultimately seven bayonets. Beautiful. The, the scabbards. So th this one that I have has got the M8A1. So we will get to that in a second. The M3 was initially issued with a riveted leather M6 scabbard with a protective guard designed to prevent the point from piercing the sheath and injuring the wearer. This is specifically huh. in reference to what people call jump rated sheaths. Okay. There is a list of criteria that the, right. that the tip has to have a bias towards the outside of the body or it has to have a metal protective cover. So when you see jump rated, it has to also do with how many points of retention are on the knife. Gotcha. And that is a, it's a mil spec, so it's revised periodically. Okay. So whenever somebody claims to be the authority of a jump rated sheath, they may be the authority on the mil spec for 1984, right. but it's constantly revised. Yes. So unless they hold that mil spec in their hands, it's worth researching. And I think you can look that up. Uh, so mil spec mm -hmm. is... That's a real term. When I used to be in manufacturing, I was in charge of all the mil spec documents. And it's everything like how much light can reflect off of black or oh, how right. tough this is in lateral strength or what are the current jump rating requirements for a knife sheath, which I didn't deal in, but gotcha, that's what gotcha. that is. Um, so let's see. A rawhide thong on the end of the sheath allowed the user to tie the sheath knife to his leg. U.S. paratroopers frequently wore an M3 and sheath tied to a boot for emergency, for use. emergency use in cutting parachute lines or close quarters defense. That's that's the smarter approach in my in my opinion. Yeah. Instead of instead of tying something from your waist here. Yes. To, to, you mean like what happens if you get cut up? You know, cut up on that, and then all of a sudden it dislocates your hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, you know? no, it's just on a boot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, M6 was later dropped in favor of the M8 scabbard. The M8 and later later M8 Alpha One scabbards both have an olive drab fiberglass body with steel throat. The early version M8 scabbard only had a belt loop and lacked the double hook earlier bayonet scabbards had for attaching to load carrying equipment such as the M1910 haversack. So the M1910 clip that they're talking about, mm -hmm. um, most people will remember from their canteens. Yeah. Instead of having Alice clips, you kind of have this uh, weird bent wire that has two prongs coming through it. Mm -hmm. The uh, Gerber Mark IIs used to have it. Right, right. Canteens, you would, you would almost bend it to unclip it and then take your thing off. It, yeah, it would yeah. pass through the holes in a right. web belt yeah. or through the loops on the 1910 Haversack. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. The improved M8A1 scabbard manufactured later in World War II has the M1910 bent wire hook. The scabbard throat, scabbard throat flange is stamped US M8 or US M8A1 on the flat steel part along with the manufacturer along with the manufacturer initials. Some M8 scabbards were later modified, adding the 1910 hook. Later, M8A1 scabbards were manufactured with a modified extended tab on the web hanger to provide more clearance for the M5 bayonet, which rubbed against the wider bayonet handle. The sheath is also correct for all post-war U.S. bayonets, including the four M4, 5, 6, and 7. Cool. Uh, so yeah, so that's pretty cool. My yeah. personal one is a remake. Um, it's pretty cool. It's very heavy. Uh, this is 
Boker Plus, but it's pretty cool because they used the H. Boker and Company 1943 stamp. So this is made contemporarily. Right, right. But they use the original markings. And I don't know if they use the original tooling. I think these are made in China, but they are well built. Mm-hmm. And their scabbard, instead of being plastic, is all steel. Which oh, feel, nice. Feel Let me on that. I mean, it's nuts. Oh, man. And it's pretty cool. So... Oh, that's heavy. That's, that's it cool. It is, but yeah. it's, I think it's rad. So you could spend your whole life collecting World War II M3 fighting knives as they were made by Aerial Cutlery Company, which is based right down in Menominee, like or Marinette. I had no idea. That's, that's where, awesome. That's where they were from. Now oh. they make scissors. They're, that's a, it's like sin- an hour away from where we're sitting right yeah. now. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. And those are very rare. So the Aerials, W.R. Case and Sons, which you guys are all familiar with, Imperial, mm-hmm. you should all be familiar with, Pal Cutlery, Camillus, Robus and Sure Edge, Cutlery Co., Kinfolks, Utica Cutlery, H. Boker and Company, which is the replica that I have. Um, Ontario makes them to this day. I know that also. Nice. Uh, so, I mean, you could really spend your whole life collecting just World War II by different makers. And there's even a rogue one, which I thought was Ariel. It's stamped mm-hmm. on the guard, ACC. So that could be Ariel Cutlery Company, mm-hmm. or it could be American Cutlery Company, and nobody's exactly sure who made that knife, and those are very hard to find. So gotcha. yeah, it's kind of a unique one. If you read in the cold <laughs> books or any of the old historical books, they will say unknown ACC. So there's even right. a rogue. It makes makes you wonder if both companies just stamped them in the same place with the same tooling. Yeah, you know, because I mean, because they didn't they were unaware of each other. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, that's interesting. So, okay. uh, yeah, 2 million of them, 2,590,247, or 590,247 of them are out there. However many have survived since the 40s, nobody knows, but every year I'm sure there's one less by a kid throwing granddads <laughs> in the backyard, right? Yeah, so, and, yeah, I would I would highly recommend recommend picking up one of these for your collection. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, so... This is, a, uh, this is an important knife. Some people collect Pokemons or whatever. I don't think you can pluralize <laughs> that. I think it's just Pokemon, but... Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, some people collect M3 fighting knives, and so uh, that is the history lesson today. Um, I will snap a picture and throw it up on our page, Behind the Blade Podcast on Facebook. Um... But yeah, it is a. It's just a sweet knife, and when you see it, you're like, you're in it. I mean, yeah, you just picture it. those World War II paratroopers with these tied to their legs. And, you, you, uh, it's, it's, a cool it's, knife. it's visceral. Yeah, there it's, was a it's visceral. It's cool. There was a movie, World War II movie, and I don't remember what it was, but these guys, uh, I want to say it was 82nd Airborne, and mm-hmm. everyone's shaving in their mohawks, and mm-hmm. everyone's getting ready, you know, to Ooh. go on a jump. And there's one guy with a mohawk uh-huh. who is just spinning one of these in his hands and getting like all the balance points mm-hmm. and he's going through some knife drill manipulations. Right. And it's just it just passes over him, but he's taking his M three and he's flipping it in his hands pretty quick and pretty deftly. Right. And it was just a cool scene to see that <laughs> knife. And I wish I could remember what movie that was. If you guys remember it, please shoot us a PM so I can watch it again. But yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, anyways, that's history. We will be back with some tech tips, so stay tuned. All right, gang. I got... All right, this has been one great mail call session. I think a couple weeks ago is when I got the... Uh, the axe sharpener by KME sharpener. I got one of those and I couldn't be more pleased. I think I talked to you guys about it. I took it to my grandfather's Brooks and uh, was able to whip an edge on it. No problem. However, this one. All right. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I have a couple obsessions. Uh, Number one, I don't buy anything new. The only new stuff I have is stuff that I make. So I go to a lot of thrift stores, a lot of rummage sales, a lot of antique shops, and I have an obsession over compasses. I have an obsession over flashlights, 
And believe it or not, this is a weird one. I have no base for this whatsoever. I have an obsession on old scissors. Old scissors. That one's, story. that one's brand new for me, man. I don't think I've heard that from you yet. I buy them at yard sales. The old metal scissors, a lot of them are Italian made mm-hmm. and not necessarily hair shears, but like utility scissors that you find in grandma's knife drawer. Like, I mean, really, I buy them anytime I can. I have like <laughs> a thing about old scissors. Well, because I like old scissors, I have a bunch of dull old scissors. <laughs> and I, uh-huh. you know what? Honestly, I don't know if it's. I'm apprehensive about taking them to the grinder for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. look, guys, I'm a pretty good grinder. I mean, I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but I'm still nervous sharpening scissors on my KMG grinder, and mm-hmm. I, I feel weird about it. However, KME sharpeners, that's Kilo oh. Mike Echo, not Kilo Mike Golf, KME sharpeners, KME. Yeah. Uh, they make a scissor attachment, which when you get is a little perplexing. So I had to get on their YouTube channel to find out exactly how it mounted up because it has like this knurled barrel Mm -hmm. that rides next to the jaws, which are similar to the jaws in the standard system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I recommend that anybody who gets this does look up the YouTube video because it's very enlightening and it'll also make you feel kind of dumb unless you can figure it out faster than I could. That's youtube.com slash KME sharpeners. Scissor attachment, and uh, and it is very easy to use. I was just kind yep. of an idiot and trying yep. to figure it out, so I had to look up the video on their YouTube channel, which is very informative. Yep, definitively, it's YouTube.com/slash KME Sharpeners. There you go. Yep. And I took this to one of my old pair of Italian vintage scissors that I picked up at an estate sale many years ago. And man, I was able to do the toilet paper test, like the hanging toilet paper snip test. Oh really? Oh wow! I was able to raise a burr and strop it off. And I was very excited about it. It was just, so. I tell you what, it, everybody's got scissors in their house, right? So if you have a pair of scissors, or you're a freak and you just have to collect antique scissors like I do, then <laughs> I definitely, definitely recommend this product because number one, it works. It makes. I'll be frank. Let's be honest. Full disclosure here. I know these guys are sponsors of the show. It makes the worst sound you could ever imagine <laughs> oh, really? when you sharpen it. The thing just screams at you while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. However. Once you set that angle, and it's got very fine adjustment to it, once you set that angle, it's a very fast operation. Uh, anybody who's dealt with the KME and had to reprofile an edge, you know that when you're reprofiling, you may have a couple minutes or a little bit of time invested into getting just that right angle. Because of the flat grinds on the scissors and because they're so consistent from my experience, it's a very quick resharpening. So once you use the marker, get your tricks, watch all the tips on YouTube, once you set that edge bevel, it's going to scream at you for a few seconds and then you're done and you've right. got razor sharp scissors and you may restore an antique or you may just keep your you know, old lady happy or maybe you're a scissor freak yourself and you keep yourself happy. There's, so. a, there's something to be said about older scissors back from back in the day being made out of actual metal that just perform. The action on so, them is, yeah. there's, it's, you know, and there is, we're going to go on a tangent. Look, this is... We're going to go on a tangent. I'm sorry. There is a video somewhere on YouTube, Jim. I'm going to try to recount this slowly. Maybe you can find it on the Chromebook. (laughs) There is a video about a man in England who still hand makes scissors. And he's got a humble shop of about five people, three to five people. And they've been making scissors for like the last 65 years or something in this plant. Maybe even longer. William Whitelays? That sounds right. Will, William Whitelays? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's... Now, it should be about like an eight-minute video or something like that. Now, this one's this one is three minutes, but there are more than just that. I tell you what, if you guys... Well, so get the KME scissor sharpener and watch this video, and you're going to be on a hunt for antique scissors. Because watching the process that these guys go through to hand make each one of these... Oh, oh must be this Ernest Wright and Son? 
good possibility. Okay, that this one's about this one's about eight minutes. Okay, this and, and, and minutes. the guy's hand making scissors. Yep, and, and, and it's a channel. Ernest Wright and Sons. Oh, it is yep. unbelievable to see the work that goes into these. And when you realize that the older scissors all went through this exact same process, and you can tell by looking at the finishing, and or I'm sorry, the finish on the scissors to see what the finishing techniques were. I mean, this is really an obsessive thing. Now, if you're a hairstylist, you know how expensive scissors can be and how important it is to treat them well. These guys on the KME channel, they go through and do professional barber shears right on there. And That's so, awesome. I mean, that is a great way to maintain an investment piece. So anyway, enough about that. Enough about my <laughs> scissor obsession. Go check out kmesharp.com and look at their scissor sharpening attachment. And I, I tell you what, it absolutely gets my stamp of approval. I got to use it myself and I was thrilled and I'm very excited. That is all. We will be back with Tech Tip. All right, gang, we are back for Tech Tips. Now, we had discussed a couple different topics. Um, I think last episode we covered rust mitigation and knife maintenance and uh, kind of the end user side of things. And we like to bounce back and forth between end users and our beloved trench crew who are out there making knives and learning how to make knives. And so we want to give you guys a little something to chew on. Um, we're going to try to hit on one central topic but it may bounce back and forth for a couple different reasons. So I hope you guys get a lot out of this. I know that when my eyes were open to it a few years ago, it made a huge difference for me. So hopefully for at least a couple of you guys, it makes a big difference for you and your builds. Today, we are going to talk about various buffing compounds and various wheel types and where they should be used and what results you can expect to get from them. With 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 on top of that, proper descriptions of everything, so you guys should be able to go and find them. Yes. From from your from your knife shop supplier. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because because knife shop supply is is they're they're pretty good about keeping all the stuff that we're about to talk about in stock and ready to go. Mm. You should be able to find everything in, in whatever size that you need. Yep. And uh so, it's also worth mentioning that mm -hmm. uh Gunsmith supply, like oh, yeah. Brownells no, no, yeah, and totally. Midway and stuff like that. You can get stuff from them too. So a lot, there's a lot of crossover between the two. So well, because it's still metal finishing. Yep, exactly. It's still metal finishing and fine metal finishing. Fine metal yep. finishing. So with 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 good finishes and covering up scratches and stuff like that, and getting it getting it out of the way, and at the same time making sure that your material that you're polishing is is absolutely perfect. Yep. So um so the first thing that that we're going to talk about is just straight polishing compounds. So right? what what let's start at the beginning. Um, what mm -hmm. does compound do, Jim? Compound is something that you apply to a wheel, whether it's an abrasive wheel or it's a muslin wheel or whatever type of wheel, to aid that wheel's function. And you can also step down to different grits for finer function. It is a as well mild abrasive that does remove yep. some amount of material. Well, right? yeah, and, and depending on depending on different types of material you use at Bark River, we use something called satin glow, right? Which is which is you can see sparks coming off of the blade. Yes, because because it is abrasive. I mean, and and then we also we also use polish compounds that are not abrasive. That are well, they're they're abrasive, but not nearly micro as bad. abrasive. They're ones, micro abrasive. Yeah. They're not nearly as bad as the satin glow stuff. Not bad. That's that's the wrong word. Not nearly as aggressive, aggressive. as the aggressive as the, uh, the the satin glow stuff. But it still does remove material and still puts in its own scratch pattern. Right, like a stone. So, um, so starting right at the beginning, do you want to talk about the satin glows first? Should we just... No, actually, I think we'll come back to the satin glows in another episode. Uh, another episode. Yeah, you got so it. So well, let's just, just straight, do the grease compounds. Just straight yeah. grease compounds. Okay. The most you, you guys will call them jeweler's rouge, you know, yeah. but there's uh, different grades to it. So we figured this is a great chance to kind of go over the different grades that we use in our shop. Not that they're the mm -hmm. 
uh, what do you call it? Definitive or uh, what? yeah, not not the end all be all. Yeah, exactly. Not yeah. the end, not the end all be all solution. All inclusive for this, yeah. but this is what works for Matt and I. And Matt and I use similar compounds. I use some different compounds, and I know Matt uses some different mm-hmm. compounds. Mm-hmm. So there'll be a little bit of crossover here. So, but I know that the one thing that we both use and we both depend on greatly is our straight black compound. Oh, good God! So black yeah. is the most aggressive that you'll find in our shop of the grease type compounds, and they come in like a mm-hmm. bar that looks like a crayon. Yeah, uh, you know if you can picture that texture and consistency. And black is the most aggressive, like I'll repeat that, that you'll find in our shop. And that's what we rely on a lot. We set edges with that. I mean, that's yeah. how we buff edges and everything like yep, that, that too, right? we, we buff edges with, with it as well. Um, and we can we can go down finer if we like, but we typically mm-hmm. just stop at this. And what it ends up leaving is it ends up leaving, if you look at it like a, under 100 times or 200 times scope, I mean, if you look directly at the scratch pattern on the edge, it leaves something that looks similar to a 2000 grit edge. There you go. Right, something similar to, and I, I let me stress that it's not exactly the same because it's not cutting the same, and it, the pattern that it leaves is not exactly the same. But you're talking about like just the look itself. Yeah. So and so, so it's a, it's a different kind of function. It's a different beast than stones and strops. Um, but that's what that's what we both end up with. So we start with black burnishing our edges. Yep. So that'll burnish the mm-hmm. edges. Black also works in the initial stages of mirror polishing depending on what your steps are you can use mm-hmm. that to get some scratches out it also works well on guard faces and yep. your sub hilts and like anytime you have bolsters you know black will really get everything those those uh grinding marks that you have in there from uh 320 grit on now i you're gonna have a hard time and you're gonna be spending a lot of wasted effort and heat trying to get anything coarser than a 320 out but yeah. you can do it you'll dish it out and it'll look like garbage you, you can do it, especially if you don't do a good enough job removing your scratches from previous steps yes you've got like a 320 grit barely barely bare finish over 120 grit scratches right you're gonna have 60 a, grit scratches, you're yeah. gonna have a really hard time i mean back to the metal finishing thing i mean you, sh- you really should take care to remove all of those scratches beforehand right but so, if you were to jump mm-hmm. in on brass or nickel mm-hmm. silver with 320 grit scratches you'll be able to get them out with black compound yeah yeah that that uh, used to be what we did before before we go. started hitting everything on the 1200 there you go so yeah it's, it's good because 320 to 1200 for us transitions really well because we're on yep. the slack and and uh, and the, the finish that we leave there is very easy to mirror polish out and if you really want to go crazy throw on a 2000 grit belt afterwards that's and, what we and do yeah faster. we do that with a lot of stuff yep. too we'll run all the way to 2k um, or we'll use Scotch-Brite wheels, which sure. are equivalent to about a 400. Our Scotch-Brite pads yeah. that we mm-hmm. use are equivalent to about a 400, and I can get those out with black, too. Very nice. So, uh, yeah, so black is going to be the most aggressive. And then the next step up, and we use that on a stitched wheel. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you guys yep, do, too. Yep, so stitched wheel. It's not hard like a felt wheel, but it is rigid more than a loose wheel. Right, right. And there are two different types of stitch wheels, too. I, I, I'm not sure if you know this, either. So, so there are two different two different types of these stitch wheels. Well, three different types. But as far as the as far as the sewn wheels, there's spiral sewn, which which wear down in a spiral pattern. So you will eventually have a stitch that breaks up. And then there's concentrically sewn. Right. So so there's there's a life in between each row of stitches that that it starts off looser and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter till it hits the stitch. The stitch breaks out and then it's loose again. Yep. And then it goes straight down. We prefer the concentric sewn. So just something else to consider. I do too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're great. Oh, no, totally. They're easier to maintain. They last longer. Your wheel gets smaller mm-hmm. over the period of months or weeks, not not like in a day, but your wheel gets smaller, but it gets rejuvenated constantly. So you, it's like right. getting a brand new wheel as soon as you break that stitch. Right, exactly. And you just yeah. have to worry about RPMs versus versus the finish on that. But in our world, it makes very little difference. Right. For that, I know some guys like to go ham on that. The other other type of wheel that we'd like to really talk about in this instance without getting into like brass finishing or anything is, uh, is a one-row stitch 
pitch loose wheels. Yeah. Which is just the same thing as the as the other as the other muslin wheels, muslin, muslin cloth <laughs> wheels. There's a hole in the center for your arbor and one row of stitching around the hole and everything else is floppy. Most dangerous thing in your entire knife shop, by the way. Seriously, it'll grab something out of your hand and throw it into your foot if you're not careful. Like a hyalai scoop. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. It, 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 it can be pretty bad. That, for us, is typically just reserved for the final step on guard finishes and, and polishing handle material. There you go. All right, but moving on from the black. All right, so well, actually black we can use on handle material. Yeah, you can. So, no, you can. We, we'd used to, we talked about using black on the blades. And now we can say that black is going to be your initial step in the process of polishing those micarta handles. Yeah. Now, typically, you guys take it to 1,200, 2,000? Yep, 1,200, 2,000, depending on the material. That's how we are, too. Mm -hmm. And if it's a black micarta or a green micarta, we don't do any wood. So I don't know how black reacts with woods or acrylic. Oh, it darkens like it that. right away. It goes right into the pore, and then you basically have to refinish the wood at that point. Gotcha. It, so, it, it becomes super dirty. So do, I do, we do not recommend using that on woods. Nope, I don't, not I don't at do all. woods, and if I did, I would skip to a different grit anyways. But on your micartas, especially your dark tone micartas, there's no mm -hmm. problem with taking black to it and just... Yeah, and... I, I mash it in there pretty. Oh decent no, right no, now. totally, totally. Especially if you get so there are different. There are even different grades of micarta that you can buy, oh, okay. right? I mean, so without getting too complicated into that, there's a black and the double black, and then different manufacturers manufacture them either cheaply or or a little bit more with a, with a quality control behind it. But but uh, che even cheaper micarta, if you were to polish it on the black compound, the black compound goes in and dirties the handle up and it looks even more black. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So yeah. it's a little bit of a cheating method. Yep. But but uh, and then we follow that with a with a white compound. But we'll get into that in a minute without getting too complicated. So, so moving moving from black, the, the most aggressive, the most aggressive. The next one in line would be green yes. for us. Now, that's not to be confused with a true jeweler's rouge, which comes out to be like twelve, fifteen thousand grit. Okay, by the time you're done, that's for like polishing silver and platinum and gold and 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 all those all those super soft, non-ferrous decorative metals that are even there. You can use it on you can use it on brass if it's already pre-finished as well. But the the green that we use is like a final finish after the black. And for us, that grit pattern comes in around 5 to 6000. Okay. So it's 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 much more coarse than the other jewelers rouge. So you really have Maybe, to Maybe cuz I've been using your guys green. Sorry guys, we're going to no, go on okay. a tangent for a second. Maybe that's why cuz I've been getting some struggles out of my brass guards to get mm -hmm. them to really have that almost black mirror polish you like like yeah. negative light mirror polish right like yeah being reflected out i know what you mean well i just try a try a finer compound go with some go with some we'll talk about this in a minute go with some blue or some pink right after that oh you know yeah. i never use mm -hmm. blue i never use i've it. got i've got a bunch of little chunks I'll just i know i have a bar of it i oh, bought well, oh. i bought a bar of it and, uh, and there it sits oh. i mean it's still this big it's still you know yep. <laughs> give, give it a shot that's actually one of its uses is it's meant for finishing non-ferrous metals and the blue we're talking about that we're jumping ahead a little bit sorry guys but but the blue comes in about 10,000 oh. and and the blue is meant for finishing ferrous and non-ferrous metals and it's meant for n polishing non-stabilized woods and acrylics oh okay so that's where the blue comes in gotcha yeah i didn't know i so, could use it i thought it was just for the plastics uh, uh, the acrylics that's oh, what i thought it was oh yeah for. well i mean that 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 is its its chief thing i mean it does it does a great job of just smoothing out all of the scratches and impurities that you could find in acrylics Which, but it works just as well as on unstabilized woods i'm sorry guys this so, is going to be a wrap session uh, we we wanted to get really into the compounds but you're going to have to bear with me asking jim what compounds <laughs> i should use on my guards and hopefully you'll learn something from that's it. okay think uh, of it as a guided yeah, discovery yeah, yeah. so <laughs> then at, at that point what i do that on a loose wheel or on a stitch wheel? Loose. Loose wheel. Loose wheel. Loose wheel sure. loaded with blue. Oh, yeah, but loaded with blue. I need another buffer. You can never have too many buffers, guys, because here's mm -hmm. one thing that's also worth noting, so we're going to bounce back and forth, um, is you can contaminate your wheel. Oh, yeah. And once it's a black wheel, 
It'll always be a black yeah, wheel. Yeah. You you can't rake out that black ever again. It'll it'll turn gray. Yeah. It'll turn light gray if you rake it out. Only to still be dirty if you put anything else on it. Yep. Exactly. So you have to you have to so if you really want that perfection, you should have dedicated wheels. Yep. And I recommend also cleaning them or covering them, I'm sorry, to keep them clean. Yeah, well you know, dust and stuff will get into the fibers and it will actually cause scratches. Yep. And yeah, we've had careful. a problem with that, so I'm gonna have to do like some vinyl covers over my final finishing wheels. Uh, to keep them kind of protected. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I'm well aware of now that wasn't as big an issue in my old shop layout. But now it's close to the grinder. You get my car to dust in there and that's super abrasive. Yeah, it's, it's really... It's, and, and belt and belt con and belt belt particles and yep. everything. Oh, yeah, those ceramic, little ceramic oh. particles. You oh, know? yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, so we've covered black. We've covered green, which comes right after that, which is meant for metal finishing and putting that final, like, screaming polish yep. on there. Yep. The next one down from that... It comes out about 10,000, 8,000 is, is the white compound. White lightning. White's um, great. It's meant for mirror polishing non-ferrous metals. And we use it on, we use it to polish micartas and G10s. Yep. So do we. We use so, it to polish our leather handles too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. There's a, there's, there's a red compound that we use too that's about the same that's meant for... That's meant for like le like leather and acrylic and stuff. Like so that I well. use your method mm -hmm. of loading it with white and yeah. then kissing it with red compound. Yes, and then that gives it just a little bit of that rouge hue to it. Yeah, and then absolutely. I go through and spin it, and it helps kind of level everything out with a little bit of a tinge of red. If you overdo it, it ends up coming out looking kind of weird. Right, and like, so you have to just mm -hmm. very lightly, and then I use that white. But I'll also use black on my black stack leather handles. Oh, really? With a light touch. Oh, and it comes out. Screen. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah. That's good to know. So That's you, awesome. Because I was like, "Ooh, I shouldn't have done that." I was like, "Oh, but it worked." <laughs> <laughs> it's like new method patented. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so that's great. The uh, the 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 I guess the next compound in line would be the would be the blue to talk about. So we we hit on that just a couple a couple seconds ago after after the white. Um, well, we'll so is blue we'll, finer than white? Blue is finer than white. Oh, okay. Blue gotcha. is finer than white. Think think if if uh, if white's eight to ten, blue would be. I don't know, fifteen to 20? 12 to fifteen. Okay, yeah, or twelve to seventeen in there in that range, and that would that would be also for ferrous and non-ferrous metals, final finish touching, uh, non-stabilized woods, and acrylics. There you go. And that that and so so blue blue is is phenomenal like that, and uh, different manufacturers have different levels. But you but what what you really what you guys really should be taking away from this is you really should be taking away the progression that we're using. Yes. So I don't care if a different manufacturer has. Pink one, pink two, purple three, and and black seven as their super fun. Right. Because because they're they're different compound manufacturers that they try to standardize it, but 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 you should be thinking in terms of a progression. So I mean working even you, from courses to fine. It's working, just like you right, would do in belts. Right. And then knowing which materials you need to start at number one. With. Now does that make sense? Yes. Now yep. what about RPMs? RPMs play a huge part. And, and we so, do this differently. Okay. What do you guys typically run on your buffing line? What are your RPMs? 1,700. Oh, so we don't. Oh, okay. So we're low okay. speed buff too. Okay. okay. So so I, I only typically have 3,600. So I got two machines. I got two different types of buffers. I have fast machines. That's our 3,600. And yep. I have slow machines, which are our 17 to 1,800. Yep. That's it. That's all we use. So, but for hip for guard polishing, we'll get it on the fast 3,600 to put that initial polish on. And then it's to a slow machine for, for the touch-up. For finish. For handle material, no matter what it is, slow machine all the time. Yep. So, um, I mean, unless it's like a black mark card and we really have to get aggressive with it or something. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but um, yeah, handle material will be on the slow machine um, as well. And and But how the compound reacts to it is a little bit different. The faster the machine, the, the faster it spins, the more aggressive the compound's going to cut because it's turning twice as fast. 
Of course. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. So it's just something else to consider. And also, wheel size plays into that, too. Not so much, but, like, the smaller the wheel, the, the faster it'll spin, it do- of and course. It, and it doesn't cool off by the time that same surface makes contact again. Right, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. a, a one-inch wheel will fucking... Sorry. Bleep. A one-inch wheel... Well, I clapped. I don't even know if I'm supposed to clap. <laughs> uh, a one-inch... <laughs> A one-inch wheel will virtually catch on fire because it's never getting that opportunity to wind cool. And whereas, like a forty-eight-inch wheel, I think the big horsehair ones were huge. They were like three yeah. feet in diameter. Yeah, they, or were, they were massive, and they didn't overheat because of that. Mm-hmm. Because the surface that contacted is revolving through space, cooling before it comes back in contact again. Right. So, so you have this bigger this, the wheel, the this constant the shedding of heat. Yes, exactly. As it goes on, just 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 by working on it. Um, yeah, those are those are the older machines too. I think those are what five horsepower. Yeah, Ten, five, were, five or eight or they're, something they're like that. They're monsters. Yeah, yeah, I think my buffers are three quarter horsepower. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for yeah. the shot, and, and you still. You oh know, yeah, you bear right down on it. You're fine. Um, yeah, so, so, so yeah, absolutely. So I mean, wheel does play a difference. But if you're doing hollow grinds and stuff, you want the wheel to match your contact wheel surface closely but slightly undersized. Yeah, that does definitely. that make sense? Yep, yeah, totally. So if you have a ten inch wheel that you're doing your hollow grinds on, then you'd like your buffing wheel to be just slightly under ten inches. Right. So that you can fill that cavity and not bite the edge. But right. I cannot tell you enough about the safety of using a buffer because I mean there have been makers who've been killed by it. Yeah. And it is a very, very dangerous tool. So uh, especially on the higher RPMs where you have that major torque factor. Oh yeah, really especially those big, those big, huge horsepower things. If yeah. you if you find one on eBay for a hundred bucks and it's a five horsepower right. monster, and you're just like, sweet, I can make so many knives on that. Just be, be super careful. Yeah. Extreme <laughs> hey, can't can't recommend that enough. It's it's a mindset from the beginning that something like this can really hurt you. So pay double attention to how you are touching the stuff on there, especially if you're doing tops of the guards yep. and stuff like that. I've had knives thrown yeah. thrown out of my hand. I've cut my fingers open. I have a I have a chest wound. <laughs> you know, from 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 the, exactly that where where a buffer, a stitch came loose in a buffing wheel, wrapped around the blade, spun it around there and cut me right across here. I've got a scar. Yeah. My chest, about an inch long, right here, that the tip came around and gouged me before it flung off somewhere. I could have been killed. That could have been my life. neck. Yeah. It was just it was it was bad. But but be super careful about that. So moving on from the blue though, there's yeah. one more after that. There's one more pink? after that. Pink. Pink. See, I, I've never yeah. used that. Pink is like an all pur- the, the pink that we have is like an all purpose after polish for everything. Oh. Okay. So if you want to put like that extra final little luster, so for guard it'd be, so for a guard it'd be black all the way around, green, green all the way around, blue light touch, skip pink. white, right? Yeah, skip white. Okay, yeah, skip white. Blue light touch, pink super light touch. Okay. And then and then by the time you're done, if all your scratches are out and all your polish lines are great, you should end up with this like chromed mirror like space odyssey type finish by the time you're finished gotcha you know it, it'll there's it'll, another it'll really compound nice. it's like called sun glow or something it's a Ooh, what is this it's a yellow time to learn something grease compound uh yellow buffing compound and i know it's used by like zach buchanan it's used by the loveless shop don't ask me why i don't use it probably just because i haven't looked it up to order it uh just look up yellow buffing compounds like bright yellow Bright, yeah. I think I might know what you're talking about. Yellow I think we tried this Dilu. before. Dilu. polishing compound. Bright yellow. Flex buff- cut gold. Flex cut I'm pretty gold. sure it's flex cut gold. Don't quote me on this. You may have to go look at Zach Buchanan's page because he does a neat tutorial on it. Um, orders to Puerto Rico can't be delivered at this time. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it's flex cut gold. And so check that out. It's 10 bucks a bar. You know, oh, there it is. Probably a pound or so. Oh, they have some on Newegg.com, believe it or not. I don't know what that and Klingsport. Newegg, Newegg, Newegg.com is a computer parts supplier. Oh, okay. They're like Tiger Direct. Gotcha. <laughs> Which I don't know what that is either, but I'm going to agree. 
They're um, it just if, you, if you're building a, com- a computer from scratch, boom. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but no, that they're on there as well. Yeah, so I would take a look at that. I think that is. Uh, I mean, these guys get mercurial finishes just beautiful liquid metal yeah. finishes out of it and they use that i have yet to try a, it yet but it's just because i don't use it doesn't mean it's not out there quick, so i think you guys should check that quick out overview too. says it's a blend of aluminum and titanium oxide oh, okay. provides a balance between aggressive removal of hardened tool steel and offering a high color polish on top of that yeah. so cool so yeah check that out too yeah check that out also i i have yet to try that but yep. i but i totally will Definitely worth trying. So, so, so I think that's is that our full progression. I think, of, I think that's my full progression. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, ours mirrors it pretty closely too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we omitted a lot, but that just gives you guys questions to ask us in later episodes. So that is the progression of buffing compounds as it is used in both the vehement and bark river knife shops, respectively. I uh, hope it sheds a little bit of light and helps clear the air as to oh, what compound do I get to get this finish or that finish. Uh, we finish our edges on either black or green, depending on what's loaded on the wheel at that moment. Yep. Um, and we get the scratches out of our guard using black or green. I Bark River Shop is masters with the black wheel. I prefer the green wheel just for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. This works better for me. So, um, Anyways, there's that. We are going to be back with some Q&As. I'm starting to feel Sunday sick-like, so let's bang out some Q&As okay. and have a good rest <laughs> of our afternoon. And then get you out of here. Yeah. All right. So, Jim, last week uh, I had gone to my, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to tell you guys what model knife it is because it's one of my favorite knives, but the result was actually kind of disappointing. So, uh, I've got a whole story that goes along with this. I was on my KME sharpener, uh-huh. and I had this pocket knife. It was a locking, you know, pocket knife. Mm-hmm. And I put this pretty sweet edge, got the burr to curl up and everything, and I had just gotten one of the Genda Industry nano cloth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, for the 4 micron uh, diamond emulsion, and so I loaded that in there, and, and I strapped this edge on it, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm doing it wrong. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, I was really kind of disappointed with the edge, and I was like, no, maybe I'm using this nano cloth dog. You had told me about it, and the guys over at Genda, uh, Tom Blodgett and company, I mean, these guys are freaks they're passionate i mean i still have it's, it's totally I probably true. have 300 words from tom on him telling me about stuff not for the podcast just because he's that excited about <laughs> sharpening i have to go back and read uh-huh. so, so i'm sorry tom i haven't read that last message i just i needed a cup of tea and like a nook to curl up in to read the whole thing and so and i'm like no i said i must be doing something wrong and i realized that it was the blade steel on that knife just was not wasn't decent I, I actually and the only way that i was able to prove this is i took my buck 110 auto that i had customized over by ghost town knives yeah and i took it out and it was sharp you know but it sure. wasn't like screaming sharp right but i was like let's take a known quantity it's 420 hc yeah uh, with the paul boss heat treatment on it you mm-hmm. know what i mean and it used a lot so it had well i didn't take it to the KMB this time i just took it to that nano cloth yeah oh my god (laughs) yeah yeah man people say (laughs) hair popping sharp you know what i mean no i probably could have put an arm hair through a glass window like i was just (laughs) i was dragging it along my arm and there it was like there was stored kinetic energy in every hair as they're launching across they launched up like they were trying to hit the stratosphere yeah okay i get it i get it so so what the nanocloth does is it's self-leveling and as you're taking your stropping stroke, right? So you're drawing away from the edge, and like mm-hmm. on a stone, you're drawing towards the edge. As you're drawing away from the edge, not only does it hold like a perfect metered amount of abrasive compound, that diamond emulsion juice, mm-hmm. but it kind of self-levels 
and it guides it because there's just the slightest amount of give. Now, I would say it's like a, a little spongier than kangaroo hide. Right? Sure, yeah. So it has, but it just grabs that edge so gently and it just, oh my, I could not believe. So after <laughs> that was done, I started using it on everything with amazing results. And I realized that yeah. on this one beloved pocket knife, the steel was just garbage. And I was kind of bummed out and I was like, oh man, that's a drag. But, uh, you know, so it is what it is. The KME did well. The uh, the Genda Micro, and this thing, the Nanocloth, it's like a bench block. I mean, it's about three inches wide by, I don't know what you say, eight inches, ten inches yep. long? Yeah, I think it's eight by three. Eight by three? It, okay. It's eight by three. And with that, you get so much stability out of it. So after you're done, whatever sharpening method you use, whether it's by hand or with one of the systems, um, especially one that we recommend, you can take this bench block and just drag that blade across that Nanocloth. Now, do you know there's something special going on with it? Because it absorbs a hundred percent of the light in the room. Yeah, it's so it, it, black. It's, it's it's super black. It's yeah. it looks like the portable holes from the cartoons <laughs> that they yeah. would just throw up on uh -huh. the wall, and then you you rub your emulsion on there. Now, do you have any tips to get that emulsion to be evenly dispersed? Uh, so so how I do is I put four even spurts. So I, I use the one by sixes okay. because because I do it on razors. But for big blocks, you just want like an even dispersion of dots, like maybe maybe dime sized dots. <laughs> Right, right. Put on, put on your, put on your latex glove finger. Uh -huh. Right, because that's that's important. I mean, you're dealing with diamond emulsion right. here. So Don't want to rub your eyes no, with diamond no, sauce. Right, yeah. you're gonna have a bad time. So you put, you put, you put that on your finger, and you just make circular motions, and you blend across the whole thing. Okay. In in like in like a zigzagging pattern around wherever dots you have. Okay. And then try to try to blend out whatever 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 black spots still remain, because you want to get the whole thing. Then let it sit and soak in. All right, and that'll start suspending that fairly evenly. And then if you want, go back and do it again, just to make sure. And then it'll suspend that compound for, for a really, really, really long time. Well, maybe my pocket knife that I love so much didn't suck. It was my application of the sauce. Oh, maybe. And yeah. it had dried uh -huh. by the time I had brought my Buck 110 over to it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Absorb, well, I explained so much right there. I would, yeah. I would go back home and try it right away. This is like a supplementary <laughs> tech tips, guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, the guys at Jenna Industries are big supporters of the show. And I mean, look, our whole thing, I don't, any one of our sponsors that we talk about, number one, they're vetted and they're not sending garbage and they're not charlatans. We only really support people who are ridiculously passionate about what they do. And you are going to be hard pressed to find another company who is in the, I would say in the media business, right? Yeah. Would yeah. that be like the embrace of media business? Like, like, not, not only that, like the elite media, oh. like, 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 like the, like the Corvette Lamborghini series. Right. You know, of, of, of that, of that industry. And, and the guys over at Jenna, they know their stuff. And what's also cool is they make parts that dovetail nicely with our, K, you know, our family, the KME sharpening mm -hmm. crew. Their stuff works with their stuff. They make components for their systems, but they also make components for the Wicked Edge. They make it for the the uh, the, 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 hap, the hap, other one. Hapstone? Hapstone? Hap, I don't know. All I really know is Wicked yeah. Edge and KME. But, but it's Wicked Edge, KME. I think, I think Edge Pro. Edge Pro. Is, that's Edge Pro is on there, too. I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so, they, so no matter what system you're running right now, you can get more abrasives from the guys over at Jenda. And if you have a KME system, obviously that'll work too. Or if you're a standalone freehand sharpening wizard, mm -hmm. they've got the stuff for you too. Stones in various different widths 
grits, even the abrasive sticks that we oh, use yeah. on the customs. You know what I mean? You get that beautiful hand rub finish. Mm -hmm. They've got it all. So I recommend going and check them out. Jim, where can you find Genda Industries? Matt, you can check those out at www.gendaindustries.com. J-E-N-D-E industries.com. And make sure that if you order from them, you tell them the Behind the Blade saying. Right, gang, as we coast into our Sunday afternoon, we have got your Q&As, which these ones are easy. I don't have to think. I just answer. Jim does the same. <laughs> we are experts. Yeah. We don't say the term expert a lot on here, but I am fully confident in using this term, even in public. Jim and I are experts at not thinking. So that's why we <laughs> like this so much. <laughs> we, we love doing nothing. Yeah. We love this nothing thing. <laughs> All right. So we did not throw up a question box this week because we had a significant of tag-along questions on the last question box for the last episode, which I think was sometime in 2012. I don't know when our last episode was recorded. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the last question box we put up was, I think, September 10th. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's been it's been a while, yeah, you know, because because we've been, we've been both exceedingly busy. But we have a ton of questions already. And then you guys should see another question box for next week. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so we're, we're trying gonna... to get back in the groove. And the week after that, we should be getting closer to launching the Behind the Blade podcast standalone recording studio yeah so and, the, and the youtube channel we'll make sure to yes. keep all you guys informed via facebook <laughs> and hopefully instagram as well yeah um on on what the what the channel is so you guys can go there and subscribe to that as well because i know that all of you guys have you know subscriptions at youtube and we want yours much like <laughs> kim jong-un we get very quiet before doing big things does he do anything big? Yeah. Well, no, he would take those two-week vacations and then try testing a nuke. Oh. And so he, he would, oh, like, go and hide right. for two weeks. Yeah. So that's what we do. That's what, basically what we're doing is we're building the nuclear of podcasts. So <laughs> nuke-level podcast. <laughs> it will melt um, your faces off. All right. So from September 10th, Old Man Herbie. Old Man Herbie is his handle, but his real name is Rabbit Herbert. And he is with R&N Blades out of Australia. The nice. guy is uh, one of my heroes as far as inspiration, fit and finish, execution, and not just that, he's an enterprising man who is constantly growing his business. And he's he just built himself, him and his wife just built this amazing workshop down in Australia where he nice. lives. And he just received in some new mills and lays and stuff. So he's ever expanding, oh, ever growing. So if good there's for anybody you, that you need to follow, I, I look, if you're a knife nut, then you need to follow him. If you're a hunting nut, you need to follow him. If you're an archery nut, you should follow him. If you are a knife maker that needs inspiration from a guy who has really built from the ground up and who just handles life with both barrels. Like, I mean, I just, mm -hmm. I love this guy to death. He's coming up to visit soon. We're going to have him on the show. That's awesome. It's yeah. going to be great. Um, follow him. Old man, Herbie, R and M blades. Go check him out. Anyways, okay. his question <laughs> advantages, if any of cryo and salt and Rob Bert, her Bert, uh, the, yes, there are several, but we have plans. Hopefully we can execute them. Jim had alluded to us making a behind the blade podcast test knife, a control knife. And at some point, once we get the video thing going, because it's going to take quite a bit of work, we are going to make exact versions of the knives as close to exact as humanly possible, even mechanically possible. Mm -hmm. And we are going to try them both vacuum, oil, cryo, salt oh yes and we are going to put them head to head and find out what the difference really is and put it in as scientific a setting as we possibly can so as much as i would like to say if you go to one heat treat shop they will tell you something completely different from shop to shop so mm -hmm. um i would like to just put this to bed right now put a bullet in yep. are there advantages of cryo treating knives 
Um, are there advantages of using molten salt baths to heat your knives? You know, we'll find out. So uh, that is a good question, and trust me, it's burning in all our minds. So stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. It might take a while, but this is what yeah. we want to do. Uh-huh. Uh, Charles Harding, Matt and Jim, you have hinted at designing an auto. What types of design ideas have y'all had? Any OTF designs? Thanks for the great discussions. Thank you for listening, Charles. No OTF ideas. No OTF ideas at this time. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, but the the auto that we designed. Sorry. Can we no? Can we go into it? A little bit. Yeah, or... I just I'm sitting here like okay. sniffling into the microphone. <laughs> I so so basically, what we have is we have a button release and lock. Yep. And 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 unlock. Yep. So uh, the design that we have, Matt and I, Matt and I are pretty decent designers in our own right, and we feel that the design we came up with will will be. It'll be it'll be a really cool. I think it's a neat looking knife. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's a neat looking knife, and uh, it's kind of basic, but I think it's going to be fun, and it's just a place for us to get our feet wet. As we approach, uh, I think we're ten days away from switchblades being legal in the United yeah. or in uh, Michigan, in this United State. Uh, um, so it's something that we're looking forward to, kind of dipping our toe into. It, but, but look, we're not Tony Marfion, so I, mm-hmm. I don't have like every engineering uh, capability and everything at my fingertips or his keen design eye. So Jim and I kind of just laid down what we thought was a pretty neat side folding auto, mm-hmm. and I hope it's tough. I hope you guys like it when it does come out, but no OTFs at this time. Although. I can probably figure out an OTF system. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so we can probably, I, we can probably sit down and figure it out. It's not hard, yeah. But, so, uh, but, but you know, baby steps. Yeah, baby, baby steps. steps. Exactly. Let's baby see. steps. So we're going to do the first one, and then Matt and I will probably get together on others later in the future because both of, both both him and I love, love auto knives. Yep, and I, so like, I like side folders as much as mm-hmm. I like autos because they're easy to deploy and retract and stuff without a whole lot of uh, and, risky mechanisms. And they're cool. Hold yeah. it up. Click. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, so. Jeff Stanberry. I'm trying to decide on a first knife for my girlfriend's son. He is seven. What would you recommend as a good starter? I was thinking Victorinox Cadet. Any other suggestions? No. Victorinox yeah. Cadet is the one. Yeah, Victorinox Cadet is a really good first knife. Maybe a Pioneer. Yeah. Now, yeah, something, that's, too. something that's worth mentioning here. And So, okay, I guess there's another recommendation. And let's go on a tangent. This is a safety tangent. Children, young children, are better served with a fixed blade than a pocket knife. Because mm-hmm. a pocket knife can act as a guillotine if it were to close using that you know beloved walk and talk function that we all love so much and the yep. resistance that the back spring puts up and a, and that gives that knife a bias to close so it doesn't open in your pocket. That's the reason behind that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's also very dangerous for children who are closing knives. Now, I gave my daughter at about six or seven a Spyderco Dragonfly. Yeah. It's got a large, tall... Um, the blade on it is tall. Yeah, no, I, so, I know what you mean. So you yeah. can pinch it from the spine and maintain a significant amount of control. A lot of the blade protrudes from the handle. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at, I'm going to reach into my pocket. Give me All right, a what you got? I've got my Pioneer with me, which is going to be reminiscent of a cadet in most ways. Other di- dimensionally, it's a little bit scaled up from a cadet. Mm-hmm. Not much of the blade protrudes from the handle you, you, scales. Yeah, you just have a nail neck. You have a nail neck. Mm-hmm. So you're asking a five, six, seven-year-old to maintain the dexterity of underdeveloped fingernails to keep that control. Listen to this, guys. That's just a natural closing yeah. of a, of a um, Victorinox Pioneer. So if you have a sharp edge with, from the factory, these are very sharp, and your finger or even a little bit of your finger is between the scale mm-hmm. and the blade... It acts as a cigar cutter. I can. I, I've totally gotten myself a couple times. As just an adult. The, the tip of your finger as an adult. Yep. With one of these things, I mean, so it's just something to be aware of. It's a little bit more dangerous for kids to to have the folders, just as Matt was saying, the guillotine effect, and especially if it's a slip joint. Yep. It, it comes comes right down and into walk and talk, and it, and it really wants to. So, so 
Spydercos. Spydercos, yeah. Because they sit uh-huh. so proud of the handle. Yeah, it's, you, could, you, can, you can fit several fingertips on the blade to hold it and open and close, especially if you put down a little bit more money for like a compression lock PM2 or... Yes, or, that's it. Man, the paramilitary yeah. series, because <laughs> they have a compression lock, safest child, safest child's folding knife I can think of. Here, here. Yeah. And now they have the PM3. Yeah, which is smaller. Which is a shorter it's smaller. blade. Yeah, it's smaller, right? Right, and a blade length doesn't matter because... The only time that that really makes it, and I don't think they shorten the handle either. So the problem nope. with the PM2s mm-hmm. is in small kids, it doesn't necessarily fit in their pocket. So you gotcha. may want to get a belt sheath or something like that mm-hmm. for them to carry. Sure. But truthfully, I recommend fixed blades for children because it teaches them how to use mm-hmm. the blade. And then a more advanced feature will be something with moving parts that they could potentially arm themselves. Now, there, there's a progression in learning. Think of it as like a ladder, if you will, to learn how to use the blade first. And be totally aware of its capabilities before you worry about the safety of have, moving your fingers out of the way as, as and losing control of it. Right. You know. So so just having having a really small fixed blade, like 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 it's like no joke. One of Matt's grunts would be great for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. What, or, what like what, you know yep. I, even still I'm I'm gonna I'll give up the sale on this. Mora mm-hmm. makes. More, I forgot about a more. Short bladed, like a youth knife, but yeah. it has a big fat handle, which gives the kids a lot of control. Yeah, and they're kind of nice colors. They're not intimidating looking. They mm-hmm. look, they're just a field craft knife. Yeah, and that plastic sheath, it's easy for them to unsheath without putting unnecessary strain to break free of like a kydex retention or something, right. which causes you to jerk it out and then send <laughs> it like a sewing machine. You're doing this, you know. Yep. So, uh, uh-huh. if I could recommend a knife. For a young, young child that you want to teach how to make feather sticks or do whatever it is out camping and stuff like that, then get like a small Mora youth knife and, and that will serve you so much better. And then as they graduate, to Jim's point, take that next rung on the ladder and then get them a knife with moving parts because, look, we all grew up on Swiss Army knives and turned out just fine. But the fact of the matter is we all also cut ourselves a lot. And I know mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I got my daughter a, a folding Spyderco first to teach her knife responsibility and how to manipulate it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I did her a disservice and I should have just started with a fixed blade right out the gate. Well, that's, that's what we all did. My first knife was a, my first knife was a lockback. No, oh, you're right. And my, with, with, with the clothes on it and they closed on my fingers too. Yeah. I mean, so yes, we all, we all kind of grew up on it, but in, in an effort to kind of mitigate that and kind of break down that learning, that, that, that ladder of learning to learn how to control your blade first and learn what it can do. Yep. So you're aware of how to be safe with it. You know, then then you move on to something with a moving part. Advancements in knife, uh, you know, technology, <laughs> knife knife handling, knife yeah. safety philosophy. Kn- there you go, perfect. <laughs> All right, so on to the next one. Uh, Jesse Osufsen. 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 That makes more sense yeah. than what I was trying to do. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jesse. Uh, any wisdom for guys that make decent knives and sell them at a fair price? Have good standard knife making equipment, but haven't been able to speed things up enough to make it reasonably profitable. Um, I e my dollars per hour sucks real bad. Yeah, Jesse, that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the white whale, man. Yeah, that's that's the that's the, that's the golden goose that you'll be chasing for a very long time. Yeah, possibly um, the rest of yeah, your career. If yeah. you ever figure it out, Jesse, please send us a message and tell us what the exact formula right. is on that. Uh, and and without knowing without knowing specifically your method, right? Um, I would say as a things that always speed up production would be you know, and I hate to keep coming back to this. It would be would be anything that you can do to set yourself up for a quick fast assembly. Yep. Would be would be would be would be something that you should probably look at considering. Study I mean, Henry Ford. I mean, so it was. I think it was BTB thirteen point two five, where mm. we dedicated like a fifteen minute episode yes. just to answer a question that was really similar to this, where a gentleman had asked us who, who makes great stuff, who asked us um, what we could do, and basically what we covered was find local machine shops, do larger quantities of blades, 
water jet your blades or laser them, however you do it. You know, have a you know do do them in batches, and and look at you know identifying what your longest times are and getting that either either done by someone else or and and then and then you come back in and finish it up or finding ways for yourself to lower the amount of time that you have in in the blade i mean because i know that not every step takes exactly the same amount of time but if so, he was also if he was a custom maker and he didn't want to get uh you know neck deep into the manufacturing oh you know what? Things, i'm sorry you're, you're totally right yeah, yeah. and so yeah. that that would be my only caveat to what jim mm-hmm. said although that is very sound advice for somebody who's moving into production but jesse really the point still stands it's just how to be more efficient and how to be more efficient is completely up to how you operate your shop whether it's organization whether it's batch building whatever mm-hmm. it may be minimize your tool changes minimize your belt changes by making more than one thing at a time of the similar type and that's really the best i can give you because yep. we're all trying to figure that out trust me so i think i think something you, you, that you were doing is a uh, for your for your backlog if i can talk about this or you can like you can like cut me off at any point okay. if it's too much I will. but i know that if too you... much <laughs> <laughs> notice that yeah, i yeah. shut up i'm a yeah, good yeah, friend yeah. i want want no, that to be ahead. on the record no it's all good but but um let's say you've got model one model two model three and they're spaced out amongst 30 different customers in, in, in random order, just however the orders came in. Um, I know that what Matt will do is Matt will take X amount of Model 1 from his backlog and make all of that same knife together. Regardless of how recent or long ago that knife was ordered. Now, this was done, I don't want to say out of panic, but out of necessity. However, mm-hmm. it has served me well, and I end up having people who are older in the queue getting their knife and being satisfied sure. and people who are newer in the queue getting the illusion that their knife came to them faster than it probably should have you know what right, i mean because yeah. but what that did is it helped me go from over 300 knives backlog uh sorry we're in like a french resistance tunnel in world war ii and we're getting <laughs> shelled right now no yep. it's uh, we're, jim's we're, kids are upstairs hey we're at a house we're doing this from home it is what it is um no, so what that ended up doing is it helps me knock out my queue. We came in with about 300 knives in our backlog when we moved to mm-hmm. Michigan, and now we're down at less than 80 nice. by doing that method. And we're still moving mid-techs at the same time mm-hmm. just so we can eat and keep the lights on. Right. But by doing that, like little things like that, but it's really up to you to figure that stuff out. So uh, and we're glad to help wherever we can, but I don't know how your business model operates, so I can't give you any more advice than that. Yeah, it, it, it really is specific to each person because, because really – when people start knife making knives, you start discovering your own way of getting stuff done. Yep. I mean, there's very, very. That's I would, the joy of doing yeah. this, and that's why knife mm-hmm. makers are such a ragtag bunch of renegades because obviously they they don't want to work for somebody else. They want to go do right. their own thing, and they want to do it their way because they feel like their way is the best way. And that goes mm-hmm. on to business practices, and whether you're right or wrong is determined by the market. Right. All right. Uh, Jared O'Brien, what is the most overhyped knife and steel? Jared, uh, I'm gonna bust your chops real quick. Um, I, it's so subjective and you may have noticed that behind the blade, I know that my knife group, uh, the vehement syndicate, uh, bark river knives, we don't operate this way. So we don't get into like a shit talking fest or try to find something we could really hammer on. So all questions are welcomed. But if you ask something like, Hey, what can you tell me about that sucks? Then I'm just not going to answer your question. So on to the next one. Um, we are to, See, I lost my place there. I got, I got the next one. Okay. Um, what do each of you think is the biggest or best thing to happen to the knife industry in the last century? Oh, lots happened in the last century. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Swiss fine blanking. That's, oh, man, that, that's, that's, that's magic, man. Yeah, Swiss yeah. fine blanking, that, that's magic, man. How about uh, how, you know, the the, the, the multiple, the, the, the almost the Z motion of the of the, of the stamp um, as it comes down yeah. to prevent to prevent the squish, the squishing, you know, or, or the, the, what is it called? The, the, 
fishtailing, duck, duck footing, duck footing. Duck footing. Yeah, duck footing. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like fishtailing, yeah, fish mouthing, <laughs> fish yeah, something. It? Yeah. yeah, it's duck footing. Yeah, yeah. you know, to, to kind of prevent that. Um, the Victorinox yeah, is a great example of that. They do a lot of Swiss fine blanking yep. for a lot of their stuff. I think they and, pioneered it actually. Yeah, 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 and they do a great job. It was later really picked do. up by Buck Knives. Yeah, so yeah, it, you have to look that up because it's hard to describe on the air. But basically, it's a stamping method for blank stamping. Yeah, like where, where there's was, multiple different dyes. Yes, and yeah. it results in a finer, cleaner square stamp, and it ups production significantly. Um, but the biggest thing to happen in the knife industry in the last century, Cody, and this is the God's honest truth, it's it's simpler than you might think. It is the advent of super steel. Yeah, and you know yeah. that I'm oh, against yeah. it. I'm not. I'm not even a super steel freak. I, I mean, I'm still arrested <laughs> in 1970s technology. But to be honest, there wasn't any huge leaps and bounds in metallurgy beyond. All right, we can talk about the Uthbert. We can talk about uh, Spanish steel out of Toledo. Mm-hmm. We can talk about you know out of, even out of Zolingen. But the fact of the matter is, is most of the cutlery industry was some variation of 1095 or yep. a simple carbon steel. Yep. Up until you know maybe 40 years ago. Yep. 40, yeah. 50 yeah, no, years exactly. ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When and people that's where really it started, like, oh, what happens if we add vanadium? So as chemistry improved, as yeah. metallurgy improved, now we have these dedicated blade steels, which we didn't have before. Nope. before no, no, we, we had 154 cm in the 70s, <laughs> and you had some sort of 10 series carbon. However, the forge decided, yep. to, to, however much charcoal they had on hand to dump in the batch. Right. You know, yes. determine the carbon content, which determined which which number of ten it was. Yeah, exactly. So, that's I mean, that's what so, that name designation means. Yeah. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing. I would not say that it's C Tech. I would not say that it's acrylic no, handles. Definitely I, not. I, but I would say that steel and Swiss fine blanking and heat treat methods. Heat treat uh, methods. Vacuum have, have heat gone, treating yeah. is another one. Yep. And so a lot of stuff has come little things that we kind of take for granted, especially as an end user, because it's not a whiz bang handle material. It's not a crazy sheath system or no. design. You know, we're still <clears> stuffing <throat> iron or steel rather in leather. So not much mm-hmm. has changed that way, but the type of steel we're stuffing in that leather yeah. has changed. It, and the way we cook that steel has changed significantly. Oh yeah. yeah. There's much more attention given to each steel special formula to, to be able to, to be able to deliver it as a knife, not just a basic treatment for the steel yes. across the board. Yeah, d- d- specifically as a knife. That, yeah. that, that, that this, this is a knife steel. This is oh. the recipe that this knife steel uses for its optimum efficiency. That's exciting. And it depends yeah. on what it is. And like, it does. If it's it totally does. If it's a slitting or a, a kitchen knife, then it's a slightly different recipe yep. than if it's going to be a chopper, even though oh, it's yeah. the same steel. So, I mean, it's really cool. Yeah, it, depend, it depends on your usage and application and how you make it. Absolutely, man. Yep. I mean, because because how you heat treat a chopper is going to be different than how you heat treat uh, your treat a kitchen knife. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. 100%. And then yeah. the, those, those, I would say, are polar opposites. I would say, yeah, that yeah. is like, yeah, It'd that is black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah on yeah. the color wheel. Um, all right, McHeel, Muscles from Brussels. For Matt, now you have the new building with a few acres of land. I'm sure there'll be plenty of birch. Ever consider making a birch bark stack tunnel <laughs> rat? The bark in the UP is thick enough. If so, dibs. No, <laughs> I would not do a birch bark tunnel rat. But we do have birch trees. Only a few. We have some yellow birch, and mm-hmm. I think I have one white birch. I have to keep exploring the woods, mm-hmm. but I know I found at least one white paper birch. Um However, I would like to do a finished puko. A fi- oh, so there you go. You guys yeah, yeah. may not know this, but New uh-huh. Sheffield, the area that we live in up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, is the largest finished population outside of Finland. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, That's interesting. So it'd be kind of cool yeah. to do like a little uh-huh. heartland piece and do a finished puko <laughs> in stacked birch nice. bark. And I was actually talking to Mike Stewart over at Bark River about how to do that. And I guess you don't glue it. I, I glue all my washers. I, I guess you don't I, glue the I, birch. I would glue it. Would you? Yeah, I would. Okay. I would. I would glue right. it. Yeah. So, <laughs> to answer that, I'll probably have to do a couple. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, Brian, the left-hander, I'm not going to give his last name, but left-hand Brian, I'm pretty sure he would want one. 
Um, he'll be nice if you had one, and then maybe I'd want one to play with too. But I would like to do that. It does sound kind of fun. Huge pain in the ass, but fun all the same. Uh, Jim, what do you have from info at BehindTheBladePodcast.com? So from the emails, from the emails, I have, let's see. Okay. Matt and Jim from Sadistically Sharp, Jay Chavez, 1824. Um, Somebody else had that? What? Sadistically Sharp, Jay Chavez. Or, or this is from who you're thinking of. No, I'm, no, I'm just saying that to have the numerical designation at the end means that somebody already had that name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Somebody and then else had a number. Well, well to it. And, and then it was .gc at gmail.com. Okay. Yep. So uh, it's crazy. So, Internet's a big world. Yep, it is. Okay. It's a big uh-huh. world. So Matt and Jim, hats off to both of you for such a great job with the podcast. I've definitely learned a lot and greatly appreciate the time and effort put forth. Thank you, sir. By the way. Thanks, man. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that. Jim, I have heard that Bark River will be pursuing a future in production folders. Can you provide some insight as to when this will happen? What price range should consumers expect? Will you use similar materials to fix blades? Any other information that you can provide will be helpful. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. I'm very eager to see the YouTube channel manifest. Respectfully, Jerry. Hey, thank you, man. Good questions. So uh, Bark River is pursuing a future in production folders, but right now we are catching up with our main production line as far as as far as that goes, we're 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 constantly pushing back the date, but but we're we're going for Q1, Q2 next year, optimistically speaking. There you go. If everything goes perfectly, um, we have like like literally 15 different folding blade designs, and and folders that are you know mechanically sound that we just need to start executing, and we have two right off the bat that I know that everybody's going to go crazy for. I know that I'm going to go crazy for it. There's a there's a regular version of it, and then there's an LT version of it. I'm going for the LT version of it myself personally. It'll be fantastic. We have a lot of we have a lot of it done already. We've got 3D prints. So you guys have oh, yeah. the equipment, yep. and you have the designs. Oh yeah. So all it is right now is a matter of getting caught up, so that you can do that with a clear conscience and not leave your fixed blade customers hanging. Right? Oh yeah, no, no. We need we need to we need to get fixed blade production up high enough to be self sustaining. And right after that, we can start looking for holes in production to fill in with folders. And then as soon as we do that, it's going to be half and half. And hopefully it'll stay half and half for our production ad infinitum. So it'll be great. Um, Similar materials to fixed blades? Yes, absolutely. I will be producing slip joints with 3V blades. I will be producing slip joints with LMAX blades. Uh, It... I, I'll be producing you know, tie frame locks with S35VN 3V. It's T-H-A-I, so they're actually just going to be very spicy mm-hmm. frame locks. <laughs> tie. <laughs> Everyone comes with a free red pepper. Yeah. So, yeah, so absolutely. <laughs> that's, a, that's a voice of experience right there. I just had Thai food last night. Okay. I've survived, okay. but I've been training for years. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but as far as handle material goes, it'll probably be a little bit slimmer in the handle material front, except for anything that we can do. I think, I think probably, probably slip joints, the ones that we are going to be doing will have a variety of handle materials similar to our fixed blades. But but as far as some of the other stuff, we're going to try to keep it a little bit slimmer yet. Even at that level, it'll still be more diverse than most other companies. There you go. So, so we're probably not going to have the gamut of 180, 200 different materials on it, but we're thinking more like 50. So I, I think that's go. I think that's still okay. So um so I hope that helps and I hope that uh, you guys you guys stay tuned for that stuff. So thanks for asking. Good question, Jerry. Anything else from info at btbpodcast.com? I am sure there is. I feel like there was a couple. <laughs> oh, do we have messages? Let me pull up messages while you're looking at Oh, it. sure. Yeah, right, definitely. I do have those. I know there was a couple in here. So. All right, all right. 
Uh, from Dan Luttrell. Hey guys, I love the show. I look very much forward to every episode. Question, for a new hobbyist, what are some belt grinder options for under $300 or so? 1x32s, 2x36s. Also talk about belt composition and grits needed. Thanks. Dan, Kingsburg, California, 20. Mm, 20 years old. Uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, welcome to this obsession. Dan, <laughs> right? That was the name, Dan. And, and also good luck. Yeah, good luck. 2x42 uh, <laughs> is going to be probably your best bet to jump into if you don't want to pull the trigger on a 2x72. Yeah. 2x42, uh, they were made by Craftsman for a number of years, but you can also get them from like Delta and Jet. And yes, companies Delta like and Jet. That. And Delta and Jet are interchangeable. Delta is now Jet, if right. I'm not mistaken. Right, right. I think they, they put them together. Um, yeah. And they're going to be Chinese made, but they're going to run great. And mm -hmm. the problem is with the shorter belts, you're going to go through belts faster. Um, yeah, so you yeah. spend less money on the front end, but you're going to end up spending more money on the back end with your belt consumption, depending on how many knives you make also. And so, so, so if you're a hobbyist, I would recommend going for, you know, kind of elite level belts. Yeah. Yeah, I really, really would. So they, so you're talking about like right off the bat, stiff back belts for, for metal, for metal and material removal and finishing for the, where you don't need to worry about contours so much. Yep. Norton blazes. Yep. Absolutely. I go mean, high, high end on your belts if yeah, you're going to be running like Go that. high end on your belts and try to get, try to, try to, try to invest early in that so that so that your belts last longer to get as much life out of them as possible so norton blaze, blaze. belts i mean yep. and they are blaze orange black back black yep. or blue backed belts yep. and they last a super long time i mean i mean even even compared to some of their other lines and other companies lines like whether it's Klingspor, norton or 3m you know those norton blazes tend to be right on top of everything yep. um the, You're also going to have to use the one thing that's worth mentioning. Going back to without jumping into too deep of an abrasive. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I which, which um, I do like right yeah, off the bat. Yeah, one thing you have to be aware of also is a lot of the grinders in your price bracket are going to be high RPMs and not variable speeds, and the motors you can't even actually adjust. Even on the Grizzlies, you can't add a brain to it. They just I don't I'm not sure the wiring situation, but you cannot slow them down. Right. So that means that you're going to be doing a lot more hand finishing on the handles. Otherwise, you run the risk of burning it. So get in the, behind the saddle of a good 2x42, and uh, you can get J-Flex belts, which are going to help you with some of the hogging in the handles, and then you're yep. going to have to finish by hand. But, uh, yeah, get the Norton Blaze, and you'll be good to go at the higher RPMs, and that's going to be in that $150 to $300 range. Uh, anything beyond that, the 1x30s, I mean, you're really going to dust belts pretty quick. And yep, I, they go quick. It doesn't mean people, I'm sure a slew of people are like, hey, I can make knives on that. Yeah, I can make knives on them too. But, I mean, I can also make knives by using a hand file, and that's not the most efficient way to do it. So yeah. if you want that sweet spot, 2 by 42 and yep. uh, that's what I recommend. But, but, sure. I, but I highly recommend that that first extra $2,000 that you get from that, upgrade to a 2 by 72 Yeah, yeah as fast yeah. as you can. And you'll, yep. you'll see the, the benefits immediately. And then what you do is you take that 2 by 42 that you have left over, and you can either, what I did is I took, when I upgraded my whole shop a number of years mm -hmm. ago, I took my entire early knife shop all my tools, mm -hmm. and I sold them to a dad and two sons to start their own knife shop. Ha! Awesome. After I bought my Pass KMT, torch. I got a bigger blast cabinet, I got mm -hmm. better surface grinders, I got all that stuff. So all my old stuff, I just, I think it was like 300 bucks. I just yeah. sold them everything, bench grinders, the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> sold them the whole thing for like 300, 500 bucks, something like that, mm -hmm. so they could start their own hobby knife shop. Nice. So you can either do that, or what I recommend is call up Sean over at Phoenix Abrasives and ask for a power strop, which is like a, mm -hmm. uh, a leather belt and run it on that 2x42, yeah. and now you have a dedicated machine just to put in that beautiful mirror hand-stropped mm -hmm. edge, except it's done under power, and yeah. now you've got this machine that's still useful after and all they time. And they work awesome. Yep. In, in a production capacity, if we're doing beveled edges, we will use a power strop. Yep. It'll, it'll go right on a, run a 240 grit belt. We will, we'll, 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 
we'll <clears throat> we'll grind a bevel in, we'll raise a burr, and then right to the power strop, one pass on each side, shaving sharp. Yep, exactly. And yeah. you can do that even on those one by thirties, which I think is the best thing for those one by thirties because the the belt for a two by seventy two is like seventy bucks, forty to seventy bucks or something like that. But on a one by thirty, it's like fifteen bucks, and it doesn't wear out, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's so, leather. So you could buy the machine, a one by thirty, and the leather belt for the cost of a two by seventy two leather belt, which tells me that it's just better to have a dedicated machine, and then you're not changing it out and getting it all gross, anyways. All right, next so, question. So this this also oh. goes. So uh, we got. We, this is a duplicate question, okay. by the way, for what we just asked. Pierce Taylor sent in a very very similar question. What advice would you give, and what equipment would you suggest for lifelong knife enthusiast user who wants to get into knife making as a hobby? So you can absolutely take the information that we just said in this question segment and and apply that here as well, Pierce. There you go. It's, it's the same same advice, man. Yeah, absolutely. And Pierce, uh, you and I are kind of buddies on the side. I know you've been following us for a while and we've met at shows and stuff like that. So if you do get hung up, then feel free to just shoot me a PM on the side, man. And I'll, I'll help you walk through whatever you need. Absolutely. And uh, if it's something interesting enough that isn't been addressed on the podcast, then we'll talk about it on here too, man. So, but yeah, just shoot me a personal message. If you have some serious questions about wanting to get into this, I'll be glad to help you out. Okay. And so um, for our, I think, I think that's it, except for I have a, an email that's a comment. Okay. More, more of anything else. Just, it's from uh, Norm Cohen. Just found your podcast after it was mentioned in a Knife Magazine article. Oh, I didn't so, know that. No, I didn't know that Fancy. either. I, I actually emailed him and asked him to, to try to provide me which Knife Magazine that was. So we can... Can he answer yet? No, he oh, did, okay. no didn't answer yet. Didn't, Go at least, us. Listen to, yeah, I know, right? We're, we're on a Knife Magazine. Oh. So I've only listened to a few of your casts, and as far as I know, everything you said was historically correct. Sorry the Eck piece didn't go more on the start and John Eck. You cover everything. My only addendum would be for the comment about razors. W World War II, apparently, at least some airborne troops carried razors in their boot. Not not for shaving. They were referred to as paratroop pistols, and the blade folded over the back of the fist. Keep up the good work, or fun, hmm. with the podcast. I will stay tuned. Tried to sign up on SoundCloud. Don't know if I made it. I fared as good on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast, and then SoundCloud.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast. There you go. I mean, I'll so, have to look into that paratroop pistol thing. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Something yeah. to revisit. Yeah, something to revisit cool, later. Yeah, so, yeah, all kinds of little arcane knowledge out there. You know? So, yeah, thank you very much, Norm. Yeah, um, and I think that brings us to another successful episode. That's a podcast, sir. That's a podcast, and we are done for this week. We'll catch you guys next week. Woo! This is Jim Stewart signing off for Matt Martin, and we will catch you guys next time. This has been episode 22 of BehindTheBladePodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash BehindTheBladePodcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com slash BehindTheBladePodcast. You can find us on Instagram, Behind underscore the underscore Blade underscore podcast. You can find us on our website at www.BehindTheBladePodcast.com. If you guys have any questions, make sure that you email us at info at BehindTheBladePodcast.com and... You guys have a great evening.